Steve and Kevin review The Brothers War for Vintage on episode 109 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 109 of So Many Insane Plays, our review of The Brothers War for Vintage. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. Well, Steve, sure enough, right after our last recording, it was only a matter of 48 hours, I think. I, I don't remember exactly. Uh, Eternal Weekend. Eternal Weekend we is a thing. We were both and extremely surprised. <laughs> yeah. Flabbergasted. <laughs> I, I am, I'm still surprised, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. I genuinely am surprised this is a thing. So my theory is that the delay in the overall announcement had a lot to do with that European event. Um I can't prove it to you. I haven't. I don't have any insider information. But my theory is simply that they tried and waited until the last possible minute to like get an event scheduled, and then when they couldn't, they had to scramble and and structure uh, the online thing with Watsi and get the support and arrangement for that. And so that probably added a little bit. And they just they just cut bait and said, "All right, we got to we got to go ahead with two out of three. I, my, that's a theory of mine from having done some event and project management in my past. That's plausible. It's equally plausible that just trying to get the Philadelphia unions and everything, you know, all the different details are, it held it up just as much. Yeah, it could or be. Or wizards. Could be. Was it- we, we know, we, we do know from some direct and indirect feedback that organizing events in Philly is not very easy. So that very well could be. Anything else to point out about Eternal nope. Weekend, Steve? I, I, it's kind of like my um, emotions with respect to Magic 30th edition are similar here uh, in that I'm really disappointed with how they handled this and how they implemented it, but I'm still glad that it's yes. happening because I don't want Eternal Weekend to be as, as the sort of thing that dies on the vine. And if this helps prime the pump for more timely organization and scheduling in future years, then I want that to happen. Agreed. It also there is a, a small risk of the opposite though, that it is underwhelming in attendance and dissuades, you know, is sort of like a deterrent to future. <sighs> yeah. I would hope anyone who would be in a position of decision making on that regard is already prepared for the diminished attendance. They must be. If they're reasonable folks, they must be. Okay. So one section that we always love to move on to now in shows like this is our report card. But due to the vagaries of scheduling and set release this year, we find ourselves at a point where there isn't a set for us to give a report card on yet. Dominaria United has not been out long enough, our requisite three-month period, to give a full report card. And so we're going to save that for the next show. And that means because of the scheduling, we're just not going to have one of those. So I know it's breaking a little bit of a rule show, for us. Do you mean us, our but, next set uh, review or year in review? 
Well, that'll be up to us <laughs> <Okay>. to decide. <laughs> I think it. Sh- I think it should be in our okay. next show, but uh, okay. we'll decide. We'll decide. Yeah. However, we have an additional topic to fill in some of that space, and that is Steve, your impressions and review of uh, Magic my Thirty. Own report card of a Tell sword. us what. You- um, That's right. Tell us all about your convention well, I, review. <laughs> I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I I did end up going to Magic Thirty, um, and I in- was looking forward to it with a high degree of. Um, of um, enthusiasm. I have to say overall, I was pretty disappointed. So mm. let me just mention a couple of things. So the first and first and foremost, the most important thing I was looking forward to to Magic 30 was I was looking forward to the celebration of the 30th anniversary of the game, a birthday of the game. That's really what, why I went and what I was hoping to get out of it. And the centerpiece of that was the onstage live interview with Richard Garfield. Well, Number one, that was not actually a live interview with Richard Garfield. He beamed in on a video screen on a stage where Brian David Marshall was standing on a a stool talking to basically mm-hmm. a Zoom screen. That was not what I would envision. Um, so that was disappointing. <laughs> Agreed. The interview was interesting. The interview content was interesting and the audience was lively and engaged. But it wasn't the kind of centerpiece of what I thought would be a 30th anniversary event, right? Something that really focuses yeah. on and, and I don't know, kind of unpacks the origins of magic and how magic has evolved. But more than that, my major complaint was that there was a lack of cultural focus around magic's anniversary, despite being billed as an anniversary event. It didn't feel like an anniversary event. It was described as an anniversary event, but really what it was was just another event, another convention. Another, you know, opportunity to buy and sell magic cards, to buy, you know, peripherals and to participate in tournaments. It wasn't an anniversary in any meaningful sense. Uh, I was there at the 15th anniversary at um, U.S. Nationals in 2008. That's where I met, spoke with Richard Garfield about Time Bolt. And they even have a birthday cake. There was nothing like that. It wasn't, (laughs) it just didn't feel like a cultural event. A cultural event to me would be where... You bring a lot of people in to talk about the history of magic. You probably have designers, artists, so on. You make it a centerpiece. You make it a through line. Not just a centerpiece, but a, a through line. And by a through line, I mean yeah. that you build a sequence of events throughout the entire convention, right? From beginning to end, that lift up and discuss and make is a center of discourse the history of the format. Like what if they had panels from the 1990s, the 2000s, the 2010s? Now that sort of thing would have made it felt more feel more like a cultural touchstone, a cultural event. Instead, with the sole exception of Richard Garfield's faux interview, like it was a real interview, but it didn't hmm. feel real. Um, everything else was highly commercialized. It didn't feel, you know. It, it, there's a difference, you know, when you go into a museum. There isn't this. It's not to say there aren't things that are commercial, right? There is usually like a gift shop, and there's some expensive stuff that you can buy. <laughs> But for the most part, yeah. things aren't commercialized in a museum, right? A museum is a space that is dedicated for uh, study, education, appreciation, you know, art- artistic expression, etc. There was nothing in the Magic 30 experience as a convention that really approximated anything like that. Either, and it, You're thinking like... Um, old art on the something, walls, right? Something. Like it didn't have to an, be... An exhibit of old yes, artifacts from the game's development. panels, interviews, yeah. uh, you know, 
a, a, an insert in the bag that was like, you know, a retrospective, just anything. They had nothing. It was not an anniversary event. It was billed as an, an anniversary event, but point blank, it was not an anniversary event. And that was the decisive factor. The decisive factor in my decision to go was the, was the Richard Garfield mm -hmm. interview. And I felt like, okay, if they're going to center this, then surely the rest of it will actually feel like it, it was not an anniversary event. It was yeah. a. It was just like another Grand Prix or a Gen Con. It was not an anniversary event, and that. Now, I did get to spend a lot of time with the original Black Lotus art, and you can look on YouTube <laughs> and find videos where I actually got to do that. So that was, but that was not. That was off-site. <laughs> yeah, that, that was, was unrelated. unrelated, or a co coincident, coincidence yes. is what I would call it. Yeah, that that was to me very very disappointing. I just think going forward, and I understand that there is a profit motive and incentive, but. This is the 30th anniversary of the game. It just felt so crassly commercial. Everything that was at the 30th anniversary <laughs> pin, the, you know, it felt like a commercial product, not a cultural touchstone. That to me was deeply disappointing. And it, but can I well, can I make just an, an one observation quick thing in response to something you said? Yeah. It's not just that I wanted exhibits. I think that would have been great. I wanted <laughs> the yeah. sense of the anniversary to be more centered throughout the event. That's what I'm saying. It doesn't. I don't sure. care how they did it. I'm, I wasn't trying to say that they should turn the, the game into a museum piece, but they just needed something else. Go ahead. Well, and I was just using that as yes. an example of something that would have added to that that atmosphere. I, I just want to point out, I happen to have all of the YouTube videos of the panels from the, yes. the weekend saved on, on my, a playlist on my phone. There were, to my eyes, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, yes. nine-ish panels, although I, I might have not saved all of them. To your point, though, to my eyes, yes. only two of these panels that I have on my phone have anything to and do with were. the history of the game. It was it was the the conversation with Richard Garfield and Mark Rosewater's thirty years in pictures. Ah, uh, yeah. He did a retrospective panel since he's yeah. been involved in the game the whole time. I missed that. Every I'm other panel yeah. was yeah. Every other panel was something current, something right. about the current state of the game. Infinity yes. Commander, the the Magic Mark Art. Rosewater, there was the I mean, Infinity Mark Rosewater panel. I didn't realize the Brothers there was another. War. That's exactly to my yeah. point, though. Do you, you want to finish the list? Go ahead. Uh, no, that's it. Yes. It's just that the, your observations are borne out in the content they produced. I do want to point out that the presence of all those panels is an elaboration on the convention kind of feel for a magic event. The average Grand Prix does not have nine or ten True. panels at it, right? So that's an elaboration in the offering. But to your point, it doesn't set the stage as a, an anniversary no. celebration it's just yes. extra content and it was mostly as you said yeah. current you can't and therefore tack commercial on two things and make it an anniversary it's like it, it, in u.s nationals <laughs> yeah. they had a birthday cake but that doesn't really make it a celebration of 15 years of magic it right it's like yeah. it's an acknowledgement but it's not a, this was called magic 30 you know uh, that's yeah. so yeah. there was that and then on top of that i felt the entire thing was a massive disorganization it was a disorganization organizational failure. Yeah. Let me just give you an example. So I had to wait, Kevin, in five to get everything through through the event. I had pre-purchased, and I'll say this quickly, I pre-purchased my badge and everything else. Uh, the email notification said that everything was supposed to arrive, uh, be sent two to three weeks before the actual event. That never happened. I emailed Wizards, and they tried to expedite my badge and, and, and my peripherals that I purchased, the, you know, with it never arrived it arrived after i returned so the first queue you have to wait in is to get your covid vaccination verification uh arm 
uh, wristband. Fine. That, by the way, took about an hour and a half. Then you have to wait in a second line to get your swag bag that has just the most basic stuff in it. That took about 30 minutes. Then I had to wait in a third queue to uh, get my badge because the badge never arrived. That took about 15 minutes. Then I had to ride, uh, wait in a fourth queue to pick up the stuff that was never shipped to me or hadn't, hadn't arrived. That took about an hour and a half. And then I had to wait in another queue to verify and figure out how to actually get into all the tournaments that I had enrolled in. So I had to wait in five different queues, not counting the food queue. Um, that was just... <laughs> Sounds like you had a registration <laughs> It was ridiculous. Oh, there was another thing I, I had to do. There was a sixth queue. I had um, signed up for the Crimson Anniversary, I guess, evening event on Saturday. I just waited in another queue at another space in another building to get my ticket, my wristband for that. And they were quite obnoxious and rude about it. It just, the whole thing, I felt like chattel, not a human being. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was, I don't know, it was terrible. It was really terrible. Honestly, I hate to say this, but if I had to do it again, I would not have gone. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry your experience I, was that I weak, I really enjoyed playing in the three-round vintage event and three-round old-school event. Those were fun. Those were really fun. But there was no major sure. tournament that I got to see in. There were, spend time, there were some nice people I got to hang out with. Um, not as many as I'd hoped. Just very frustrating. I left very strong and detailed in the survey responses following it, feedback. Mm -hmm. it, was a, it was an organizational failure. Oh, I have to also say one other thing. So the hall... We had basically three quadrants. There was a tournament space. There was a kind of commercial space where vendors were and, you know, different weird things were, were like YouTube video, live videos, live streaming video entrepreneurs, and then the stage space, right? And then so forth. Yeah. Um, I had evening tournaments. They literally had you clear, leave the hall and then circulate oh, yeah. back in, which was ridiculous. And this is my biggest overall complaint of the entire event was the lack of security. They had security, but they didn't have adequate security. I mean, I had with me extremely expensive cards. They had me exit a building where anyone could have come in and just robbed and, you know, just grabbed everyone's stuff. People were set up outside where there was no security. They were pushing me yeah. out of the hall. Not pushing me because I willingly willing went. But around 7 o'clock on Friday and Saturday night, Friday night in particular, they kicked everyone out of the entire hall outside the security perimeter. Yeah. And then had me wait an hour outdoors in the cold, I kid you not, to re-enter the hall to play in my 8 o'clock old school event. That was... And 8 p.m. is, is not no, that late of a time. In Las Vegas in, the, like in the fall slash winter, it was, it <laughs> oh, was yeah, that's cool, cold. cold and dark. <laughs> yeah. Totally unacceptable. Yeah, I would that, never go again. That's completely unacceptable. That to me was the red line. The lack of adequate security was totally unacceptable. I hope they don't make yeah. that mistake at Eternal Weekend. I I really hope not also. Last several Eternal Weekends have had better security. Well, and on top of that, if there's a Magic 40 or Magic 50, I hope they take more seriously the complaints. Yeah, totally do. Totally agree. Um, I don't know how uh, we could advise future attendees to to prepare for these challenges, right? There's almost no way. It's You could not have anticipated most of these issues with any kind of information you had in advance, about could you? Why isn't my badge arrived? And when it did arrive, by the way, yeah. quote unquote priority mail, it was mangled. It was, what? It was, <laughs> it was mangled. mangled. It wasn't was it? torn up. There was a hole in the yeah. bag. It was, it was a mess. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's not. That's probably not their fault. But they, that's a, but they didn't. They didn't ship FedEx it until the, they didn't, problem. 
actually ship it until October 20th. <laughs> it was, and I ordered that, that it. I don't remember yeah. September 1st, August 28th, or something. You know, like the day that it opened. So yeah, um, yeah. Can, what was it? Can you give a perspective? I don't know. You weren't exactly there with a group of people exactly, but <clears throat> what was it like when people on the I guess I was going to say floor, but you really went on the floor. What was it like when people started realizing they were getting Magic 30th Anniversary Edition packs in the Black Lotus packages well, swag bags? Well, there were so few people who got the Black Lotus swag bags that I only saw it on Twitter. I didn't meet a, I didn't see a single person with a Black, Lo- Black Lotus badge on site. Oh, Not wow. a single person. Dang. So I never, I, I never got to hear anyone who was excited, but I saw on Twitter that excited i think there was this kind of like dual yeah. experience of people who were there and people who were observing online <laughs> someone that had a funny yeah. comment that said like people who are in magic 30 think it's a miserable experience people who think who aren't there think it's an amazing <laughs> thing <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a that's a that's a indictment of uh social media lifestyle of course <clears throat> well anything else to add no, steve but i do want to ask just, just so our last recording our episode was about the magic 30 anniversary product announcement kevin anything you want to add to or amend and the predictions or commentaries that you've had now that we've had a little while to reflect on it um well we have some initial evidence because of all the product that entered circulation from that event from magic 30 that suggests some price points for some of the items it's i know you and i didn't get into a lot of details about price points or anything but it's still too early, really, to to draw much conclusion from those, given that the amount of product that's in circulation is low compared to the, the total sale. I don't really have much to add. The, the conversation has really died down a lot, and we'll see it spike up again once the, that product enters circulation. I watched one video on YouTube where a person opened eight packs. I think this made the rounds in Magic Social Media. <laughs> I a person opened that. eight packs, and they, they opened two Scrublands. Wow. Ironically, two of the same duel. They, I think they weren't retro. They were almost regular frame. Was my prediction. Uh, Oh yeah, I I think they did too. But um, the point is, is that all the commentary that followed that on Reddit was like, "Wow, what a terrible opening," or whatever. And it's like (laughs) that's a testament to how um, how high variance those packs are. That that you could open right. Yeah, you could open (laughs) two two of the top kinds of cards in the set. Right, aside from Power Nine and a couple of other uh, other reserved quote unquote cards. The dual lands are it. Yeah. Like dual lands are what you want to open in that product, and uh, and a person opens two out of eight and is still just like, yeah, that sucked. <laughs> <For> like three hundred dollars <laughs> a pack or more. Right, Not ideal. Uh, it, it's a complete indictment of that product. Um, but anyway, what what's your takeaway having thought about well, it? Well, I was. I think you were sort of cynical about the product, and I was more enthusiastic. And I, I gradually became more enthusiastic as we talked about it. I mean, <laughs> I think it's an exciting product. I'm inclined. It, so this is the thing. To me, the litmus test, maybe acid test, I'm not sure which metaphor is correct here, is going to be what is the experience trying to purchase this product the morning of the 28th? That's going to be because if it's anything like what it was trying to get the badges for Magic 30, it's going to be disaster. Um, Well, I think there's uh, an even more apt analogy because I, I know you weren't involved in this, but I happen to have a copy of the 30th anniversary countdown kit sitting in okay. front of me right here. Which was that, for lack of a better term, the uh, the magic uh, advent calendar. <laughs> you know, uh, they're never they're never going to call it that, of course. But um, that was a secret layer product, ostensibly, but not structured like past secret layers. It's not print to order. It was a limited quantity that they printed in advance and was going to be for sale for a limited time. And the reason they had 
basically for that is because they wanted to get them in people's hands before the beginning of December so you could kind of treat it like an advent calendar if you wanted to. Anyway, uh, the quantity was so limited. The sale was listed and published online as being okay. for three days. It was going to be open they for three days. They didn't say that about this. The quantity was so... Uh, no, I, I agree. Uh, the quantity was so limited that the site broke down, people were getting errors at checkout, and the whole thing was, was sold out within an hour. Okay, that's not bad, honestly, compared to what I fear about this. Remember, the Black Lotus, well, the well, Black Lotus badge sold out, I think, within yeah. like 90 seconds, maybe 60 seconds. No, I'm not <laughs> kidding you. <laughs> I mean, that, that's true. Quantities, they're in those different scales of quantity is, here, of course. What if someone is in their computer, they have their account, They've got their credit card. They've called their bank. They, you know, hey, I'm going to be charging $999. <laughs> and you yeah. you open it up at 9 a.m. You've logged in. You add it to your, your checkout. You check out. And it says, sorry, it's sold out at 901. Can you imagine how infuriated <laughs> uh, people that, would be if that happens? That would be, yeah, that would be the absolute worst. My prediction is that this thing <clears throat> will sell out quickly, quickly, but not that badly. Uh, I would argue... Half an hour, oh my God. maybe less. That's still a disaster. Yeah, it's. I mean, it sucks many, badly, especially for people who can't be sitting and waiting be at the computer. Though, uh, so I don't know. However, this 30th anniversary kit, the quantity maxed out at 30 copies. Okay, which is That's way too high, high in my That's opinion. A lot. I, mean, I would like, expect good grief for for a yeah. limited product. Why would you go up to 30 for the whales? Come on. Are you, um, and there's no risk of it not selling you, if you know if you sell to 10 you times said as many that people. You were not going to buy packs before. Have you changed your mind? Are you going to buy? a display kit uh no i have not changed my mind um for a number of reasons some of which are personal some of which are i've already said on the show i i, I don't I, I don't think the price is right for this product and i'm not interested in sinking a thousand dollars into a magic thing for speculation yes. purposes even if i do believe it's legitimately yes. going to be worth a lot more <laughs> in several years um it's that's just kind of not where i'm at right now personally but you know what i'm the problem is, I, I think it's good. Honestly, I think it's good advice. If you have the disposable income to just squirrel away a thousand dollars, like I think you're going to get paid back. In I a think what of I'm planning, what I will do, is I will buy the product and I will wait about six months and individually sell the packs, and then I will keep the display box as a commemorative sort of display item because <laughs> I like the display box; it looks nice. But I have no interest okay. in well. opening the packs. That would be ridiculous. So. <laughs> That would be absurd. Now, I hope other people do because I want these cards to enter circulation. But I have absolutely no interest. I mean, I'm not gonna. I'm not. It's like it sounds like yeah, a I'm pyramid not gonna scheme. buy a thousand dollars and spend a thousand dollars and open, you know, like we said, a, a, a you know a thought lace. No, thank you. That's yeah. ridiculous. A pure lace. The sad part too is yeah. The sad part too is you and I. It's funny. I don't relitigate the whole thing. You and I could open plenty of cards that would make us go "Ooh, that's cool like yes i would love to open an illusionary thousand. mask yeah <laughs> or a lich i have yeah, an alpha right? lich and i, I have mean, an alpha illusionary mask i don't need those <laughs> right it, but it, it would be a serious treat to open yes. a time vault just like to be wow look a time vault i used to own four and be like of- ah, i paid what for yes. this pack yeah it's yeah. not worth it for a thousand dollars not a <sighs> which is a shame because that's what the you know the 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 product purports to offer that experience yeah that that was part yes. of the sales pitch was we want pe- people to experience opening well, this set but if, uh, if, if you're paying if a year so from now much to experience uh, let's that assume i'm i'm successful in buying this that's a big if and if i can't if i've logged in i've registered my account i've got everything and i can't if yeah, i can't get yeah. it, i will be really upset because of how this was marketed 
But yeah, I like let's I'll say understand. you're from now able to sell these packs. I don't right now they're going for like about three twenty five, three fifty, I think. So about you know okay. hundred dollars above the retail disaggregated value of the of the product. Um, I like let's say I could sell like three packs for a thousand, then I might open one pack on a lark, you know. But you know what I'm oh, saying? Geez. Like if I can recoup my original investment, I wouldn't mind opening a pack just for fun. Yeah. I mean, it's to yeah. me, it's not about losing. I, I'm not trying to gain. I'm not trying to make money. That let me be clear. I want to buy the product because I okay. want that display box is just like an item I can put on a shelf. You know, like. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I to that end, I feel remiss if I don't say that you could probably just buy that box. Yeah, out. but it's not the same. It's going through the experience. <laughs> true. No, you're. That's true. All right. Anything else on Magic Thirty or the Thirtieth oh, Anniversary? Let's get edition? to this, brothers. Well, as we like to do with all new sets, we want to touch on the mechanics of the set. And this set, Brothers War, uh, does not disappoint. There are some fun new mechanics as well as some quality returning ones. In terms of returning mechanics, which we don't need to talk about too much, there's Meld, which makes a statement in this set. There's three big Meld cards, and they're headliners, though not for vintage. There's Unearth, which notably is appearing on artifacts for the first time, basically. Unearth, previously a, a creature-based mechanic purely. Now you can get non-creature Unearth and, and a few other things. And Power Stones are making a return, although they were only a niche mechanic in prior sets. I forget how many references there were to Power Stones. Like the Karn made them, but they weren't called called Power Stones. Anyway, now they're out in force in this set. They are a dominant mechanic. Lots of cards create Power Stones in this set. And for reminder to our audience, a Power Stone is an artifact. They all enter tapped in this set. They all enter the battlefield tapped. And they tap for one mana that can't be spent to cast non-artifact spells. In terms of new mechanics, we've got Prototype. Prototype is a fun one. Prototype is the sort of mechanic that could rear its head in Vintage. Structurally, it's about a reduced cost, a cost reduction. And anytime you have something about cost reduction, it, I think, inherently lends itself to Vintage for obvious reasons. You I think? think? <laughs> the way Prototype works is it, it occurs on creatures, and it is an alternate cost that comes with it alternate stats. So, for example, there's this card, which we're not going to review normally, called Phyrexian Flesh Gorger. It's normally a 7-mana 7-5, and it has the abilities Menace and Lifelink and Ward Pay Life equal to Phyrexian Flesh Flesh Gorger's cost. So the big version, the 7-mana version, has Menace and Lifelink, and it has Ward of Pay 7 Life, which is its power. But the prototype ability lets you cast it for less, and the prototype cost in this case is 1BB. That's 3-mana for a 3-3. So the prototype ability gives you an alternate cost and an alternate size for the creature, as well as an alternate color, you'll note. The original 7-mana version is pure colorless. The prototype version is black-black. So that's the way prototype works. I think it's noteworthy, and we are going to review one card that has the mechanic. The other brand new thing is funny. For those of you who don't know, there are transformers in this set. And I don't mean lowercase t transformers. I mean uppercase t transformers. I don't, I don't have a count of them, but there's like a dozen of them in this set. And they are, I don't know why they put them in this set. I think they just had a place and, and decided to fill a slot. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But 
And if you want to make the argument that the Brothers War has a lot to do with making large robots, then I guess Transformers works there. But either way, they're a novelty insert in this set. And they come with some new mechanics, brand new ones. Well, one of them is a, an asterisk about brand new, and that's Convert. So Convert is the, the thing that causes you to change modes for a Transformer. And I've got a funny note on that. But basically, in the, in the case of these cards, all it means is you, you transform them in the magic sense. You flip them from one side to the other. Uh, the funny note is that because Transformers, uppercase T is a registered trademark, Hasbro systemically avoids using the word transform, lowercase t, as a verb when referring to their toys. They use that word convert instead. And so when you see it on their packaging and stuff, it all says convert. And when you hear employees talk about products, it all uses convert. And that's why Watsi used the keyword convert here. Apparently Hasbro employees are all trained to automatically use that word convert. So that's a little bit of late stage capitalism for you. But um, the uh, the other thing that the Transformers bring to bear, which I think is quite cool and really makes these cards sing, is the combination of the two abilities, More Than Meets the Eye and Living Metal. More Than Meets the Eye is an alternate cost. It says you may pay this cost and cast the card converted. What that means is you're casting its backside, kind of like a modal double-faced card. In fact, it's very much like a mobile double-faced card. Imagine if a modal double-faced card had a different cost on the back, a different spell, <laughs> right? <clears throat> and you could cast it for that cost and put it into play converted on its backside. That's what more than beats the eye is. And then Living Metal is a little simpler. It's just for it's an ability of vehicles that says as long as it's your turn, this vehicle is also a creature. What that means basically is these vehicles are alive, right? They can crew themselves. Optimus Prime does not require a driver. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what living metal is. These Transformers cards are cool. We don't need to review them for vintage or anything. They, they really need not apply there. But if you're into that sort of thing or not, these cards are cool and they are very good, mostly for EDH. That is, I think, the end of the mechanics for Brothers War. Now let's get into some individual cards. I want to start with a couple of honorable mentions, Steve. These are not vintage cards, but for players such as you and I, I think they, they hit some notes. And that is Mishra's Foundry and Urza's Workshop. If you, Steve, were tasked with designing creatively a set about the Brothers War, but you wanted to have some mechanical tiebacks to, to antiquities and sets that you and I love and other related cards that mention Urza and Mishra in the early days, I think it makes sense to have some callbacks to some of the most powerful initial lands that came out in antiquities. And specifically, the Urzatron lands and... Uh, Mishra's Workshop and Mishra's Factory. These two lands are mechanically references to Mishra's Factory and the Urzatron lands in particular, but there's a side glance to Mishra's Workshop because the Urza's Workshop obviously uses that same moniker. Neither of these cards are good enough for, for modern play, really, in the vintage sense, of course, even though their progenitors definitely are. Mishra's Foundry taps for colorless. You have to pay two mana to make it a 2-2 assembly worker but it has one tap target attacking assembly worker gets plus two, plus two. So it takes a whole bunch more mana to invest. It's never going to work the way factory does. But in practice, a pair of them make a four, four attacker instead of a three, three attacker. So Interesting. there's a little that's bit a of good upside. Point. Yeah. yeah. It's not strictly inferior is your point. Yep. I, that's exactly it. Urza's workshop is an interesting variant though. It taps for colorless. <laughs> and then if you have metal craft, notable metal craft, you tap for a colorless for each Urza land you control. Activate only if you control three or more artifacts. So, That's dope. So if you've got Urza's mine, tower, and power plant, this one taps for four 
right? You get two, two, three, four out of this one. So major potential upside. If you have three mines, it does that. Doesn't matter. That's a really good point. You don't need to have Fultron online for this thing to tap for four. You're totally right about that. Um, So anyway, Urza's workshop is that I I don't expect it to make a splash really in any format, but we'll see. I mean, I don't even know if it's good enough for Tron in modern, for example. Maybe they'll have one copy so they can go ham on the upside because it is kind of like a it's kind of like a wild card. But the thing is, is that those decks are not heavy metal craft decks. We don't need to talk about modern. Okay, (laughs) We'll see. Let's get into our first vintage card that I think is a candidate. Why didn't they call this? So Urza's workshop makes sense. But why not an Urza's factory? There's already a card called Urza's factory. Oh. It's the one from Time Spiral that pumps out two two assembly workers for seven That's mana. That's right. I remember now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What you've said makes sense if such a card did not already exist. I am unpaused as well. Okay. Speaking of card names that already exist, let's talk about the Might Stone and Weak Stone. For five mana, you get a legendary artifact. <laughs> Notably, it has the type Power Stone, which is funny. <clears throat> when the Might Stone and Weak Stone enters the battlefield, choose one, draw two cards, or... Target creature gets minus five, minus five until end of turn. And it has tap for CC, that is colorless mana. This mana can't be spent to cast non-artifact spells. So it's a big five mana, double power stone, taps for two. And when it comes in, you either draw two or dismember something. I think, Steve, that this card, if you and I had seen this card about 15 years ago, I think our heads would explode. Really? <laughs> I think this card is amazing in the past and still playable now. Less amazing now because there's kind of, you know, the the mud decks of the day don't really exist in quite the same way as they do now. But I am genuinely excited to see this card. And it's worth noting that this is the other half of the Urza meld thing, but we're not really going to review that. That's not a vintage thing. You got to have two cards in play and put seven mana into Urza to make it happen. But I think this Might Stone and Weak Stone is fantastic in that it is... It's never dead, right? Assuming you can put it onto the stack. So I guess opportunity cost there. But it, it, at the worst, it draws you two cards and makes two mana. But it plays that dismember role in a way that that the workshop decks have historically coveted. Now, granted, it takes five mana to make that dismember roll instead of a single mana. So there's a big functional difference there. But this is the sort of dismember that you can put in your main deck. And especially if you've got access to tutors of some kind, which some decks do. I just think this card's super exciting and the the flexibility of it, meaning it's not really ever a bad draw. It's not good on turn one, of course, except for the workshop mana crypt hands. But I think uh, I just I just really like the way this card is a role player depending on the matchup. So cost is high. Yeah, though. I'm I'm casting backwards. So if we suppose this had come out so Scars of Mirrodin came out in two thousand eight, I think. Mm-hmm. Suppose this had come out in, I don't know, what was the set that Gilded Lotus was in? Was that Scars? Of, what, that, that was one of the Mirrodin sets. Which one was that? That was or that was OG Mirrodin. Was that Mirrodin itself? Correct. So what if it had come out in that? How would we have regarded this? I think it would have been, I think it would have been really amazing. Imagine this in a Thirst Welder deck, <laughs> right? Imagine thirsting this in, or thirsting this into your graveyard and then welding a mox into this on their end step, and you've got the, the choice of, hey, I want to draw two cards and another two cards, or I want to, um, or, you know, dismember one of your creatures, and oh, by the way, now I just, my mox taps for two for artifacts. Like, 
that makes that makes so many other plays more live, right? It makes the whole cast Mind Slaver and activate it in the same turn play easier to do. It's another card draw engine. You get a welder going with two of these and you're just tap your welder draw two. Like, I think this card would have been incredible. Imagine how much 710 would have loved this card. Oh my god. That's really interesting. And you could tinker for removal. Yeah. Think about that. I mean, technically you can do that today with Spine of Ishsab, right? But that's a really hard, that's a two mana more than this and, and more narrow role player. This is not a narrow role player. This is a, a really broad role player. When you draw this, you're never too disappointed unless you're, you know, you've been wastelanded out of the game, but whatever. The um, It doesn't fit with the really hyper low to the ground workshop aggro model that we've had for a long time now, which is why I cited back to <laughs> to so long ago. I still think this card has it, has a place and I think it plays well with big mana, either big mana workshop decks or like uh, more control-based workshop decks. Plus anything that can search its library for an artifact and put it into play, either via Tinker or um, uh, what's the creature? Foundry. I was going to say Foundry Inspector. That's not right. The one where you sack three artifacts and, and Tinker. I think any of those decks You're talking about... That, oh God, what is that creature called? Yeah, three, five for five. I just can't think of the name of it. But anyway, any deck I think that can reliably find itself in the mid game that is still having a workshop and an ancient tomb in play and not winning the game that turn. What's the name of that card? The you said, tend not, to. What's the one where you sacrifice three artifacts and, and tinker? I, I can't remember off the top of my head. I'll find oh, it. Okay. Just a sec. I'm getting there. Oh, it's Koldolta exactly. Forge Master. Forge Master. Gosh. <laughs> That's the one. Now, I'm not saying this replaces Bolas's Citadel or anything in modern vintage tinker decks. Don't get me wrong. That's not what I'm saying. But there have been many a time when a vintage player has had a tinker in hand and due to the vagaries of the matchup or sideboarding, like they don't have a Sphinx in, right? So, but their opponent has oof in play or something like that. Like, I just genuinely believe that there are times and places in vintage where this is the right card for the job. And because it, it, it can always just draw two if you can cast it, it's never very dead. The, you know, the deck building cost for this is low, I would argue. Not zero, but low. I just think this is a quality one of maybe a sideboard card, maybe a sideboard card in bigger mana decks where the dismember roll isn't there for its speed, right? I don't know. It's tough. If you've got Golos in your deck, you can support one of these, right? True. Like if your deck's plan revolves around Golos, this card has to be live for consideration. I don't feel strongly about it, but I do feel strongly about a non-zero number, I guess is what I would say. I, I just can't believe we're going to go <laughs> indefinitely without seeing this card make a make a, an appearance. Well, I'm not sure that I agree with your basic contention that we would have exploded to see this card. In, I mean, because <laughs> it's, it's the same mana. So think about the kind of workshop slaver decks that we were kind of briefly into mm -hmm. with Gilded Lotus. Um, those decks basically accelerated out Gilded Lotus. You wanted to do that on turn one with the workshop and a pair of Moxin or a Mana Crypt if you could. And then mm -hmm. from there, you got Welder and a Mind Slaver into play. And it was basically impossible to stop, right? That was the goal. Yeah, yeah. I just don't... I mean, yes, it is pretty cool to see a card that says draw two cards. And I love the situational flexibility of being able to just hit a creature off the board. But I don't know that this is significant enough. I mean, things changed once Lodestone Golem was printed. That was sort of a, a complete transformation yep. in everything. Um. This obviously could kill a golem, which is quite nice. The golem being 5-3, right? Yep. Lodestone exactly. golem is 5-3. It's the same as Juggernaut, right? 
Okay. Yes. It's been so long since I played with one. I can't remember. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm not sure, honestly. I think... So there are so many weird workshop decks today. These kind of like... On Magic Online, I will occasionally encounter a workshop deck that seem, whose sole purpose seems to be able to sort of cantrip itself, stringing together artifacts until it can kind of overwhelm you with something irrelevant. Um, <laughs> yeah. Rather than the kind of old workshop decks of old that just powered you down with oppressive spheres and smokestacks or ran you over with lodestone golems, juggernauts, ravagers, and so forth. So, honestly, I'm not sure. I don't know where this fits among those niches, how this fits. Yeah. I think I think it has the potential to be in one of those cantrip decks. But those cantrip decks seem to me, I mean, I just don't know how they're designed. I don't have confidence in my understanding of how they're designed well enough to know where well yeah. where or where when they fit. Yeah. Well, I can respect that. And I I don't have an obvious home for this either. And I don't um I haven't been playing those big mana controlish workshop decks lately and therefore don't have a feel for which matchup you really want this in. The fact that this plays a strong role against a collector oof seems good. Like that's obviously a a role that workshop decks tend to need an answer to in general. Any deck that is trying to time yes. vault has it has a utility for this just as its baseline, though most of those decks tend to be the blue base tinker decks these days. Um that's why I'm not high on this card, right? I'm not proposing it's it's gonna be a mainstay in the workshop deck. I don't think it's a staple, but I think it's a good role player. And I just I just love the fact that drawing this is never gonna feel like that bad of a deal. That's a good point. Even if there's no creatures on board. I just think the problem like drawing this I is think just the problem not that is bad. like there's also a tension between the removal aspect of it and the acceleration aspect of it. So Um, you know, that's a good point. That's true. Design wise they don't go hand in hand, but honestly, that's just, I view the acceleration part as gravy, honestly. From a vintage context, ironically, if you have five mana to get this onto the stack, you probably have little mana concern at that point in the game. Not, not saying zero, and you could get wastelanded on the following turn, but the fact that this taps for two, I consider to be complete gravy. Like, that just makes it even less likely to be a dead draw. Imagine you top deck this, you know, just in a mid game, you've done some resource exchange with your opponent. You maybe you've wasted them, and you've got workshop mox mox, and you just pull this off the top. The fact that you could realistically pay five and cast this, draw two, hit a land drop, and still play another spell like a revoker or something that's in the two to three mana range that that's just such a smooth play pattern. It fits so nicely into your average mid game, is what I would say. And sometimes it's going to be exactly what the doctor ordered, right? Your opponent resolved Leovold or your opponent resolved, um, I, I don't know, use another example, a, a hull breacher that you need to clear the way. Um, Ragavan's been pestering you. Like it scales so well for the, the threats in vintage right now. And in a mirror match, minus five, minus five is big. That's why the, the workshop decks always like to dismember because it scales so well. It really hurts even a, a mid-sized uh, opponent's Ravager in the works in the aggro mirrors, and it could kill a Golos. There's not much this doesn't kill in Vintage. It doesn't kill um, Sphinx by itself, but it plays nicely with a a uh, Walking Ballista to do so. <laughs> yeah, I'm just I'm just gonna go non-zero. I'm gonna go with one. If you're skeptical I, to the point I of am, zero, I understand. Actually, sadly. <laughs> 
that's all right. We'll see what happens. This is the sort of card that I won't be surprised to see one or two of and not hear about it too much after that. But if there's ever a time when Golos rears its head with more consistency, I wouldn't be surprised. I think to see what more makes this, this more likely than not is the is is the ability to have it as a singleton as a tinker target or a forge master target. If forge master were a thing, yeah, then I could imagine this being more of a thing because you yep. could. Yeah, good point. Yeah, you're right. Anytime forge master rears its head again in vintage, this is almost certain to be present, isn't yep. it? All right, <clears throat> let's move on to another fun one. Brotherhood's End. One RR for a sorcery. Choose one. Brotherhood's End deals three damage to each creature and each planeswalker, notably creature and planeswalker, or destroy all artifacts with mana value three or less. We have a long history, Steve, of embracing three mana sweepers that do three damage. Uh, the, the version that comes to mind right away is uh, Fire Spout, right? which saw some play back in the day. It's been a while on that one. But the fact that this does two things. One, it hits Planeswalkers in addition to Creatures, which is fantastic. And it has the Shatterstorm mode, which is also fantastic. Now, it's only three or less artifacts, so it's not going to get rid of Citadel. It's not going to get rid of Sphinx or any of the Colossi. It's not going to get rid of Golos or Lodestone. So it's not unconditional, but it is a three mana Shatterstorm and it gets rid of what matters in a lot of cases, which is all the, all the mana rocks, most of the stacked pieces up to, up to including Trinisphere and most of the small and aggressive workshop aggro creatures, in addition to miscellaneous things like your pithing needles and whatnot. Oh, and notably, um, Urza's Saga constructs. I think this card is another quality role player, but it is a little hard to find a home for it. And the mana cost, at the moment, kind of stinks. 1RR is pretty rough because there's not a deck that's that invested in red really in Vintage right now. Your thoughts? Well, <laughs> the first thought that I had is is sort of an analogous thought. It's a throwback. What was the card when, when Young Pyromancer was heavily played? There was a card that you could, I think, cycle to do one damage to everything that couldn't be... Oh, yeah, Slice and Dice. dice. Yeah, so it kind of reminds yeah, yeah. me of that. The flexibility here is really intriguing. It's kind of like this mini Shatterstorm and mini Lightning Bolt. You know, it's like, so how do you make sense of that is really difficult to fully wrap my head around, to be honest. It it does something in a lot yes. of matchups, but not enough to main deck, I exactly. would argue. It kills, it's, it's interesting that it kills Venge Vines, so that's not, that's not awful. If you play it against something like Hogak or whatever, it's going to kill all the small creatures and the Venge Vines, but not Hogak or Hollowed One. So it's pretty soft against bazaars. I wouldn't really That's want it. That's the there. problem. It's it's decent against most, if not all, of the mid range creatures that are in vintage right now, right? Deathrite, Ragavan, um, Lavinia, Mentor, although they can save their Mentor, uh, Leovold, Arcanist, Hull Breacher, Opposition Agent. Like it's it's good against a lot of the mid range right now. Oh, and oh by the way, it clears out a Narset. It does a decent amount of damage to a Renin yes. Six. Um, it's, it's good against some of the other planeswalkers that occasionally see play like Teferi, Three Fairy. What does it not so hit? So the fact that it hits, um, it's going to leave behind Tarmogoyfs, typically. It's not going to, like I said, Hollow One, it's going to leave behind Hollow One. What else? What else? What else? It's not going to kill Tarmogoyfs. It's going to leave behind... Yeah, um, it's not going to kill Tarm. It's going to leave behind uh, uh, Shieldred, <laughs> if you're on the unfortunate side of facing a Shieldred. So I would argue that as a sweeper goes in vintage, this is going to hit a lot in a lot of decks. The trick is what deck wants to make that sweep that it's that's not going to be harmed itself. 
So what creatures would you want to be playing to sidestep this sweep? Ragavan sidesteps if you're doing dashing, and that works well with a deck that's obviously that invested in red. Um, oh, this is going to kill thought monitors also. If you're interested in being a Planeswalker deck that your Planeswalkers don't die to this, uh, in a vacuum, your own Renin 6 is going to survive this, although that's not good synergy. But if you're using Renin 6, not for the emblem, but just for the typical uses, this is okay. Oh, this plays really well with Renin 6 too, because you can take down a 4 toughness if you've got Renin 6 at 5 or more. No, wait, that's not right. You'd have to have Renin 6 at 6, wouldn't you, to make that play? Ah, I guess that's not very good. So Renin 6's um, damage is minus 1. You do 3 damage to it, then you minus 1. And, okay, you'd have to have Renin 6 on 5 to do 3 damage to each creature in Planeswalker and then minus 1 your Ren to kill something with 4 toughness, like a hollow one. That's not a great play. I mean, it's a difficult play to set up is what I would say. But you could structure a creature deck that could conceivably cast this and, and be happy about it, just not in very many matchups. If you're a, a Grixis Tinker shell, for example, and your creatures are just Ragavans and Hull Breachers, yes, you might get in a situation where you sweep your own Hull Breacher up, but that's an opportunity cost I think it's worth considering. Likewise, if you're in a Jeskai kind of shell, using this for its Shatterstorm mode against like a Tinker deck is not bad because decks like Jeskai tend to be very underinvested in artifacts. So you could sweep up. This is decent against Saga. Yeah, if you're a... Jeskai deck wanting to fight the Saga Tinker decks or Saga PO, this is not bad, right? Imagine you're fighting PO and they go in on a PO and you're able to win like a, a Pyroblast Fluster fight and then you untap and Shatterstorm them, getting rid of not only the Moxin but also any Urza constructs. That's a decent play pattern. Yeah, that's true. So <laughs> it's kind of like the Mightstone and Weakstone, but not for the same reason. I'm definitely non-zero on this. I just don't think it's, it doesn't have an obvious home like so many cards. Decent role player. It competes with a lot of other cards that we already have, like your, I don't know, Meltdown. Meltdown's a good example, right? Yes. Meltdown's not a, a common vintage card, but it's played. And this competes directly with that, obviously. And in something like Jeskai, you're almost certain to want the Meltdown more than this, now that I think about it. But this is a sweeper. This is a sweeper. I don't know. I, I don't know what to say other than I feel like this is definitely non-zero. It might even be more than one um, because it probably has, it's probably going to get some experimentation in your Grixis Tinker kind of shells. It's probably going to get some experimentation in Jeskai. And there's probably a couple of combo decks I'm not thinking of. There's not very many combo decks that run red right now in the environment though. But I got to believe that any deck that has Wheel of Fortune in it is going to be in for this potentially as Maybe. an experiment. I mean, a lot of the Urza decks that throw in Hull Breacher and Wheel of Fortune probably can't afford the double red. Mm, that's a good point. The red is definitely the, the third splash there. Yeah. I'm going to go with two. <sighs> I think it's better than a one of. Not going to be a big a splash. It's a very difficult card to predict. I mean, the fact that you're you, in, you're in with non-zero. Yeah, the fact though, that right? it extends to planeswalkers is pretty intriguing. Um, it's especially nice against Narset, isn't it? Yes, I don't know. I'll take. I think <laughs> <laughs> you said two. I'll take yeah, one. Two. Okay, fair enough. I don't think we're going to be very disappointed in that between our predictions. There. All right, here's a fun one, Steve, and most notably because it's hard to say uh, repeatedly given the, all the muscle memory we have for card names. This is the Stone Brain. Oh, yes. For two mana. It's a legendary artifact, and it has one ability. Two, tap, exile the Stone Brain, 
Choose a card name. Search target opponent's graveyard hand and library for up to four cards with that name and exile them. That player shuffles, then draws a card for each card exiled from their hand this way. Activate only as a sorcery. So for review, two mana, it's a legendary artifact. You put two into it and exile it. You can't recur it. You name a card, you cap them for all copies of that card, and they draw for the ones that you took out of their hand. And it's sorcery speed only. Steve, Jester's cap style effects have kind of a storied history in Vintage, but not lately, right? The only card that's like them that sees play right now, I would argue, is uh, Surgical. And that's not necessarily there for its Jester's cap style effect. It's more there because it's free and it fights the graveyard, right? The cap part is kind of ancillary. Um, this kind of card is, I, th- I find this highly it efficient. It really right? is. This is a very... Eff- a very efficient jester's cap and it's quite effective um but it's been a long time since we played a cap for cap's sake in vintage well i've seen i mean god i remember what was the guy's name he played that he busted back with the four (laughs) jester's cap workshop decks about 2008 kind of surprised people forgot i don't remember um actually i don't i think the problem with this card is the fact that (laughs) sometimes your opponent's not going to be upset to have you play this on them that's the problem. <laughs> they draw a card. I mean, so if you exile four cards, they draw four cards. That's well. It's only out of hand. No, it's, you, yes. they only replace the ones you took out of their hand. So their hand gotcha. size cannot go down here, but it also cannot yeah. go up. I mean, that's not true of surgical extraction. Absolutely not. Surgical has that yeah. advantage. Um, I don't. The thing is, I think this card's kind of close to playable, but I can't see it replacing anything we currently play. Well, it's, it's you know the thing about. Jester's cap is it's exorbitant outside of a workshop. This oh, card absolutely. is actually this yeah, is it's less a turn so. one play. Let yeah, landmarks this. You're threatening exactly. it right, right there. And mm-hmm. and the fact that you cap There's a handful of ancient tomb decks in the format. What's that? Too. There's a handful of ancient tomb decks. What in the happens format too, if you just shop. play this against a doomsday deck on turn? Uh, they are forced to try immediately. And kill you. Yes, <laughs> and yeah. Well, and if it's if it's post sideboard, then you're you're up against um, which of their plans. Are you more set but up you to defeat? To, you, right? you, you have to name up front. You can't search and decide. Oh, no, I get you. But the point is, you're in a well-informed environment, you're probably going to know what their alternate plan is. These days, it's typically either Opposition Agent or Shieldred or uh, one other thing, like maybe Murktide Regent, right? Like, presuming you know what plan B is for them, then you just evaluate your hand. Can you beat plan B or plan A more easily? And you name the other. But to your point, though, uh, one activation of this cuts off the entire plan A for Doomsday, and it hurts a number of other decks into a similar degree. But the average vintage deck, you know, your uh, your Jeskai, your Grixis Tinker, like, this basically need not apply against those decks. It's pretty spicy against Bazaars, but you, we all know very well that if you've spent four mana against Bazaars, you can have a much more backbreaking effect than this. That's why I say... I think it's playable, but not it's not better than a whole bunch of other tools we have. Yeah, I find it very difficult. I mean, part of the problem with all of these cards is there's no immediate comp. <laughs> you know? Like, project <laughs> prediction is based on comparables. Naturally. But that's why they're making yeah. cool new cards. No, I, you know? no I, like, <laughs> I, I'm not <laughs> complaining. I know you're not I, complaining. I know yeah. you're not complaining. <laughs> I'm just saying that prediction here, forecasting... Yeah. is difficult. I'm trying yeah. to envision how this works against a number of decks, and I just can't see... Uh, I just don't see enough cross-archetype utility. Dis- 
I don't even think this is that good against yeah, Doomsday. Yeah, exactly. Right? If it's like, not, and that's where it would seem to have. Like Doom, I mean, Doomsday is. I mean, so imagine fast. if this came out in 2007, it would be bonkers. <laughs> you know, you could take. <laughs> that's. I guess that's the theme for yeah. tonight, isn't it? <laughs> you could take out, you know, whatever the critical, the tendrils of agony, or the, my God, that's probably game right yeah. there. Um, you know, take out the mind slaver or whatever. But here, it's just it's hard to figure out. The decks are just too hybridized they're too multifaceted to be amenable to this kind of like univariate yeah. extraction yeah i'm totally with you i this is one of those cards where could someone top eight a you know an event a challenge with one of these in their sideboard i think so i mean it was in as much as you could top eight with 14 sideboard <laughs> cards <laughs> no matter what but the um <laughs> the point of the matter is is this decent in a couple of matchups yeah like so many cards we've reviewed in the past this can't really be plan a for any one matchup even doomsday the most on paper uh, vulnerable to this effect this simply cannot be plan a against okay. doomsday you have to have faster interaction and you have to be prepared for doomsday to resolve before this comes out even i mean just it's so much faster than this so could you have a copy in a deck and try it out and be successful yeah but should this be better than anything we're currently doing in vintage no uh so i think on principle i'm going to get to give this a zero even though if it happens it, it happens damn that makes me disappointed because i think you're hold on you're muted Steve. oh sorry i was muted i was saying damn that makes me disappointed because i think i agree with <laughs> are you disappointed to agree no, I'm with disappointed. me or are you disappointed no, I, in the card i love to agree with you i just dis- i'm disappointed <laughs> in that i think you're right i mean this card is just so fascinating but is this a kind of card that i would want to even put in my vintage playable binder i'm not sure that's an interesting question i i think it's below the threshold i see (laughs) that sucks (laughs) i i wonder what your your take on the the naming and the subject and the object of this card is what when you see this card and you see the 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 phrase in writing and you see the picture and you think about what it means in the history of magic what does that say to you uh you have something in mind so you say first (laughs) i just think that obviously the brain and the mind is symbolic of knowledge and card draw and cards in library so that's that's an obvious connection yes yeah absolutely and thus the turning a brain to stone i think is a fairly direct analogy toward removing that information removing that knowledge and so that makes sense to me but the name of the card being the stone brain is such it's such a like it's such a a kind of a slap in the face to long-term magic players that have so much muscle memory behind brainstone brainstorm and now they introduced brainstone and we've got stone rain like I'm kind of glad this card's not good enough because I don't want to have to try and I- integrate this into my wow. lexicon. Wow, okay. That was a bit deeper <laughs> than I expected, yeah. I I mean, look, the Jester's Cap isn't exactly, a, <laughs> you know, uh, a metaphorically or uh, symbolically indicative, you know, of what it does, right? So not yeah. all cards have to be kind of flavor- representative representational granted um, granted i like the jester's cap it's quirky it's unusual right i mean i think that's the point is that it's i mean you, i guess you could say that the jester's cap is this thing that kind of like you know like um what's the word Just, hold on a second i think what's the what's it called kevin when you get a um oh sorry i i got it now 
I guess you could. I, I mean, I guess you could say that like the jester's cap is is you know basically this object that you put on and it kind of scrambles your brain, right? That's the point. And the jester's mask is this thing that you put on. It sort of scrambles what's in front of you. So right. So I think that's yeah. what they're as a as a magical object yes. theoretically. So the stone, but I think what you're. I think I thought what you're going to say is the stone brain is ostensibly not a weapon, but it's actually a a kind of entity in its own regard, right? Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, and s- you're you're making it out to be a, an object that you apply to someone in the way you were just talking or about, or an object cap. that is worthy of its own regard or fear, right? Whereas I think what it's what it is instead oh. is it it is a weapon. Um, so it's it's I think it's a confused <laughs> concept, but I I don't think I don't. What I'm saying is I don't think that necessarily the things that are the most obvious are necessarily the most frightening. <laughs> and so that the fact that it's a little bit outside of an unambiguous meaning makes it more intriguing. In fact, that's there's a lot of there are a lot of there's a lot to say in human experience on behalf of ambiguity, right? So like what what is it that makes the Mona Lisa such an enduring object of artistic fascination is the ambiguity around what what is her expression? <laughs> yeah. I think so there's like the yeah. jester's cap is I think partly fascinating for that reason but I think it is I think the jester's cap is something that's supposed to scramble your brain it's a, a brain colonoscopy <laughs> right <laughs> all right so my takeaway here is the Mona Lisa of magic no, got it absolutely not no the jester's cap is the Mona Lisa of ma- magic and, she, and he even has a nice. similar expression by the way um that yeah. kind of smirk <laughs> no I think I do I do uh, appreciate the fact that if you verb this card that you end up in the area of just saying stone brain yes. you yes <laughs> which which Make- is a delightful bit of pun and and wordplay in magic yes. history there you go i yeah. i just i don't know how you could have designed this to to make it more functional and vintage i mean what? is it it, it, i mean there's so it, many different ways we could have sliced this cost, i mean what if it, it was you could activate it instant speed what if it was? I mean, the cost, yes, but no. I mean, what can you do? Two, one, zero. I mean, there's not much more way to go down from there. No activation cost. Does that make a difference? I, I just don't know. I don't know what it is that's inhibiting this card. I think it's. I don't think it's anything inherent in the card. I think it's the meta game. That's what inhibits the card. Well, I, I, to your point, one of the tests that we that you've done in the past and that we like to do is, what if this card was just yes. free? What if it was just zero mana, zero to cast and activate, like Tormod's Crypt? Would I you play this so. in Vintage? I, I think I might bring it in against Doomsday. Well, I might. The, let me just say, but, like, you... And I would bring it in against shops on the so, play, I so guess, the, right? So the, the utility function I'm would change shops. dramatically, right? Like, Bizarre. If you could play this... is This is the problem. Like, okay, you can go zero <laughs> mana, zero activate. I'll just strip out your Force of Will. Well, that seems pretty good. The combo deck you might yeah. want to use. It's like a kind of a duress. That's that's true. You know. Yeah, kind of like a, a super yes. duress. Yeah, that's a good point. But, or Flusterstorm. Be especially nice to strip Yes, flusters. But even then, this just doesn't have it doesn't just I mean, the power of Jester's cap is it just won the game. You activate it, <laughs> I take out your brain geyser, your two Sarah Angels, that's it. Go home. Yeah. Right? And then even yeah. then, I mean, that was part of the point about I mean, you name it, right? Like the different cards that we talked about before, like surgical, the point of surgical extraction was mostly to win the game, situationally win the game. I mean, a lot of these cards, what was the, oh, extract was the other one. Extract saw play oh, for yeah. a, a little while. 
right? We actually, I remember playing Extract oh, yeah. for a minute because because decks oh, yeah. were we built around just a did. single tendrils. Yep. Mm-hmm. I just, the, but vintage decks are not built that way. They have, I mean, even the, like, I played Urza Saga decks recently. They had Hull Breacher, they have Ragavan, they have Urza Saga, they have Tinker Targets. There's just too many win conditions. They're just too hybridized. Yeah, totally I agree. Mean, Imagine you sat down in 2004 and you're playing against a Psychotog deck. Okay, that's game. Take your Psychotogs, right? I mean, you see my point, right? Like, yeah, decks absolutely. are not built that way. So, Yep, totally agree. The, the zero-cost test, I think, is a good way to get to the bottom of the fact that the cost is not the true... Yes, that's what I was trying to say. I mean, I think it does yeah. create different use cases, but it's still, like, frustrating. <laughs> it's like, I just... Yeah. I, it does. I, I do think it does make it good enough against Doomsday, but that's because Doomsday is the the basically the one tenant of the deck construction. Yes, the, it's the difference one that you're It's the throwback to the aughts vintage design. <laughs> that's right. The problem is that the hyper efficient even then they can just like you know tutor up the demonic consultation and the win condition. So you probably have to take the not the maniac the um, oh help me out the new maniac the yes the oracle. Or- but then, you know, anyway. Yeah. No, I'm totally with you. Doomsday is the only one that really exhibits those characteristics. I guess you could you could say that Oops All Spells does too. So that maybe those yes. two examples. But those are trajectory. like, I mean, Doomsday is a decent proportion of the metagame, but Oops All Spells is very tiny. So that just doesn't yeah. hit it. I yeah. mean, in 2000, I don't know, 4 to 2010, you could, this would be good against like, 40 to 60 percent of the field <laughs> this is <laughs> yeah this is it's just like now you're talking about like 12 percent generously it's not even close to good yeah. enough well now comes the part in our show where we talk about the category of card that exists in almost every one of our <laughs> set reviews <laughs> growing tall versus growing wide here's our growing wide card for this set and it is third path iconoclast for blue red make note of that cost blue red this is a human monk which is not lost on me Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, create a 1-1 colorless soldier artifact creature, and it is a 2-1. So, obvious comparison here is Young Pyromancer. This triggers off of a broader set of cards than Young Pyro does. Note that Pyro does instance and sorcery. This does non-creature. So you're getting triggers off your artifacts. Enchantments here. Note this is creates colorless artifact soldiers, which is a strange Very. thing, but it's 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 part of it's part of this set's um, lore. And note, most importantly, I I would posit that this costs blue red. So Steve, add this one onto the <laughs> pile, right? <laughs> a pile we've been building for decades now. Oh my god. Oh, and of note, for those of you who don't know, an iconoclast is a person who attacks cherished beliefs or institutions, a destroyer of images used in religious. Yes. Uh, I hate to say it, but this is anything but iconoclastic. I mean, this is <laughs> this is very traditional at this point. <laughs> I would say this yeah, is an ironically yeah. named card in the uh, yeah, original definition of ironic, meaning something that is the opposite or you know uh, of what the definition meaning is. Um, this is a very intriguing card. So we've got Sprite Dragon, but the horizontally horizontal growth version of it. Um, yep. I think I think so. The trade-off between Sprite Dragon directly is Sprite Dragon win it has haste wins immediately, right? And then, but is vulnerable to a pyroblast upsetting the apple cart. Um, mm-hmm. 
I love the fact this is an artifact creature token. That's really intriguing to me. It's really interesting. <laughs> um, it has it has that's there's some Ravager. hidden value there vis-a-vis -vis Tinker. Yeah, Tinker Ravager. Think about think about this in the kind of role playing place that the Sprite Dragon has showed up in the past. But imagine this on a board where you haven't drawn a mox yet for for whatever reason, and you open this in your hand, and you're like, "Well, this represents an artifact <laughs> I can tinker away." Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's not going to be common, but it's a use case. Yeah, it's true. Um, it also helps when you're trying to get to metal. Oh, and it plays well with saga. I was going to say metalcraft, or saga, all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Although it's not. Uh, it's not good in the Saga mana base, unfortunately, but we'll talk about that more. <laughs> um, this is really intriguing. My God. Um, yeah. It's hard to resist entertaining the question of how would this have card been, you know, again, 10 to 15 years ago. <laughs> hey, the Brothers <sighs> War, you know, the whole set's a throwback. Yeah. We find ourselves reviewing that way. That's okay. Because wrong with that. if this had come out with young Pyromancer, I think <sighs> it's so tough because... Young Pyromancer generates a 1-1 one, one red creature, elemental. elemental, also 2 1 power, and also off a of mox. I think basically this is inferior to Young Pyromancer, and that's. But, Young Pyromancer. So let's talk about what triggers, what, what the difference is in terms of triggers. Yeah. So I think the comparison to Monastery Mentor will tell you some of the key differences there, right? Because this has the same trigger condition as yes. Mentor. And so the things that stand out there are Moxin, and the big one is Sensei Divine yes. Top. <laughs> that is a big one. Yeah. Yeah. So would you, if you were playing a young Pyromancer deck of circa I don't know, 20, 2009, 10, would you have rather had? Back then, if I recall correctly, the dominant um, young Pyromancer decks were the, the Grixis Therapy there iterations, was a, right? a brief period where that was true, yes. Yeah. Is there another? Because I don't think I think Young Peasy is better in that deck. Probably, but that's because the trigger conditions were so minimized. There was no other creature in that oh. deck. There was no other. Uh, it was it was only playing on color. Well, Monson. the other thing is, so even if you're playing like a blue red, you know, Xerox deck, this is more vulnerable than Pyromancer because you can pyroblast this thing. Yeah. So absolutely, and and there's going to be that game every once in a while where you just can't cast this on curve the way you want to. True. Right. Turn one because. It, with with on color moxin, yeah, your jet need not apply here in that Grixis deck, or and that's emerald. gonna yeah. well, obviously, a, about a third of the time, the one mox in your hand is gonna be a jet, and you're just not gonna be able to or, play this on or, curve. So I still want young yeah, Peasy or you want to fetch out a basic island so you can get gush on turn two, and ah yes, yeah, um, and not have to get the red right now. I. I that's true. It's harder to play around Wasteland with this version. Yeah. I don't know. So, I, I think this is worse than Pyromancer. I think that's revealing. But I I, I think back in the yes. era that you're talking about, that was true. But in the so you're still talking well, about I the was, old era. Yes. But okay, okay. I think, you know, fast forward to the present moment. It's notable not, the interaction between this and, and Underworld Breach. Yeah. Yeah. This I think I think the haste function and the evasion function of Sprite Dragon gives it still the nod. Sadly, I mean, I think there's, you know, few people more qualified to evaluate yeah. the growing creatures than myself. But when you line them up and juxtapose them, I think this one comes out unfavorably. I think I agree with you. The modern Grixis dex structure, you're talking about Ragavan, frequently Saga, though not always, frequently Hull Breacher. Those decks, while they have an investment in uh, artifacts that would mean this one's going to trigger a little more often than a young pyromancer 
I do think this is third in line behind Pyromancer and Sprite Dragon. And if those are Esper decks, then obviously the first slot goes to Mentor. And I don't know how much more you want. Like, also, gosh, those decks, they're just not going to go wide in a lot of matchups the way you want them to. To your point, the Evasion and Haste of Sprite Dragon gives you a certain kind of game against something like mm, Bazaars, right? That puts you in a potentially aggressive position, similar to Ledger Shredder, which we, I guess, needs to be in this conversation too. Ledger Shredder stands up against a Hollow One and can, and can hold off like a Hollow One Vengevine team in a very real way, as Sprite Dragon can. This thing, and Young Pyromancer by implication, in- inherently puts you in a defensive position in those bizarre matchups. And it's incredibly different to go- difficult to go wide enough to get around those matchups, right? And so I think you're right about that. I think in the conditions of the metagame, Sprite Dragon is superior when you have this exact mana cost at your disposal. And it's not like Sprite Dragon is burning the world down either. It's, it's uh, only occasionally in Grixis' list these days. It's not a staple. I think this card is awesome. I think it's not well positioned right now. It's one of those things where if this had been home, and so here's a fun thought experiment. What if this had been printed instead of Sprite Dragon and we were seeing Sprite Dragon for the first time today? Do you think you'd feel the same way that now Sprite Dragon was better? No, it's hard it's hard to say. I would, pr- I would probably be mistaken. I probably would have over-evaluated this relative to Sprite Dragon. Yeah, I, I think I would have too. I think I would be guilty of that as well. It's It's hard to spot the ways in which Sprite Dragon is superior but I think history has right. proven them out. It also might be just yeah, largely I, based upon where it sees play, right? The, the breach decks, the the the, the way in which true. breach is strategically oriented to win quickly. Yes, yes, agreed. This does have a tiny advantage over Sprite Dragon in the way that it fights and interacts with Ragavan, which is quite commonly played right now, given that this just... I mean, a Sprite Dragon that's beating down, even if it's doing so very efficiently doesn't interact with your opponent's Ragavan in any meaningful way. Whereas this thing that's growing is also standing off Ragavans and blanking them. So that's one small benefit. And it's a small benefit that'll be realized repeatedly in the modern metagame. So I guess you have to give some value to the incidence of that benefit over the impact of it. Although the flip side is this plays pretty poorly against Deathrite Shaman, which all these laterally growing ones always do, mentor notwithstanding. Yeah, so... Given everything we've said, the modern use case seems to favor Sprite Dragon, but does that mean to say to you that this is not going to be played? Because the more I talk about the interaction with Ragavan, and also now that I think about it, Hull Breacher 2, and now that I think about it, Construct Tokens 2, this actually matches up really well against the creatures that are commonly played in Grixis Tinker, ironically. This is really good against all of the those standard Grixis Tinker creatures. Now, granted, uh, a single Sprite Dragon goes up above the, over the top of all of those things, so it can still win you the game, right? But if your opponent has, like, if my opponent has Ragavan on one, Hellbreacher on two, and, and then they play a Saga, like, I kind of would rather have the Iconoclast. <laughs> it just blanks that whole team, yes. right? If you can keep it alive. So, I, gosh, the more I think about it, matchup-wise, if I was in a Grixis Mirror that wasn't, and I'm not a breach deck. I guess that's the that's the condition, really. Because if I'm a breach deck, I guess it's still the nod still goes to Sprite. Like I still think I can win the game with it ASAP. But if I'm playing a grindy game in a Grixis mirror, you want this? This card matches up yeah. so well. This also matches up I well mean, against uh, Shieldred too. Let me be too, clear. I think this I is a playable card. Mm-hmm. 
I, I'm not. I'm not saying I this agree. is not a playable card. Yeah, I'm trying to tease out whether or not it's going to get the nod sometimes over a Sprite Dragon, and I'm starting to think that matchup wise it <laughs> might. It does put you in a defensive stance against Bazaars, which I don't love, but uh, Grixis Tinker decks tend to be the sort of decks that just want to live against Bazaars. You know, the Sprite Dragon race plan is not usually plan A. So much so that you might even board out a Sprite Dragon against Bazaars. Nah, probably not. Probably not. I think this, if your plan is to kind of stop them and grind a little bit against Bazaars, this card plays a little better that way. It can stem the bleeding of an early double hollow one, for example. I don't know. We're getting really bitten by the conditionally better, conditionally worse aspect of this, right? Yes. Very strongly Well, it's here. just hard to avoid the comparison with the young Pyromancer. I mean, obviously there's yeah. a lot of synergy here with Urza's Saga, which is very attractive. But beyond that, it's hard to find use cases that make this superior to Pyromancer or Sprite Dragon. So, Well, yeah, but I think young Pyromancer is, is on, the, on the outs right now yeah, because the, the more Xerox... I haven't Xerox, seen any play Yeah, the more Xerox-style Jeskai like, decks... It plays in Legacy. But the, the more Xerox-style spell-based control decks like Jeskai are favoring Arcanist Absolutely. right now. And for good reason. And then the Grixis-style decks have moved away from the, you know, the Cobble Therapy days that were, as you said, briefly the, the rage. But now they're strongly artifact-based. Any deck that has Tinker and has Top is inherently going to be attracted by this card in the same way, in a similar way to why Un- um, Underworld Breach is playing Sprite Dragon. So I've got to go non-zero on this. There's just no way this is going to come out of the next three months seeing no play. Right? I'm inclined to agree. Like Sprite Dragon, when Sprite Dragon is played, it's play. I'm, I've been studying a couple of lists just for reference here. It's normally played as only a one or a two of. Like it's not even it's not even a three four. It's frequently a one two. And when you're, the deck building consideration is that slight, somebody's going to play this over Sprite Dragon that they're doing today. Somebody's got to. And when they find that it's it's situationally better than that Sprite Dragon, they might even stick with it. Right. Yeah, I'm not saying this is a, a wholesale replacement or a big wave, but this has got to see play. I've got to go with a non-zero number, but I'm not a big one. This doesn't make a new deck. It doesn't carve really new space in an existing deck. It doesn't do anything we haven't had access to really before. It just does that one thing slightly better in the modern context. I, I'm going to I'm, I'm gonna gonna go, go first zero, sadly. I just don't think in the okay. next three months this is going to see play. It's just too hard to figure out. I mean, t- Vintage is just so tightly wound right now. It's just, there's just not the space, <laughs> totally. I think, for the innovation for something like this. Maybe in the spring, people will feel differently. But in the next three months, I'm going to go zero. <laughs> well, I'm going to take the over, uh, not to take advantage of you, but I'm going to take the over. I honestly thought you were going to say non-zero, and you were going to make me take like a two or a three. Uh, I'm just going to go one. Uh, how how are you going to feel if you're Happy. mistaken about that, if we come back to one or two? Okay. All right. Looking forward to it then. So let's talk about one Haywire Might. The, the incremental variants of existing cards just keep on coming. Haywire Might is an artifact creature. It's an insect. It costs a single mana, a single colorless mana. When, Hay- when Haywire Might dies, you gain two life. Here's the key. G and sacrifice Haywire Might, exile, target, non-creature artifact or non-creature enchantment. And it's a 1-1. One, one. So we got a 1 mana, 1-1 one, one, that you can put a green mana into and exile a non-creature artifact or enchantment. So... You can't mow down our, you know, aggro creature decks. You can't, you can't destroy uh, your Ballista, Ravager, Revoker business. You can't restore the big, destroy the big creatures like your Golos and your Lodestone, etc. But it does hit all the other non-creature lock components. It hits Underworld Breach, which is important. Underworld Breach. 
it hits um it hits your uh your citadel and it hits a lot of other role players too in various matchups like your uh your leyline of the void your your pithing needle notably it hits urza's <laughs> it sure saga does. too yeah there's not a lot of saga decks that have green in them in vintage right now <laughs> So it's not a, a particularly good saga target, even though it is technically a saga target. But that could change. Who knows? That could change. We don't see any play in vintage context from one uh, caustic caterpillar, which is the most direct precursor to this, I would argue. And just so for reminder, caustic caterpillar is a one mana insect. Ironically, it's a green though. It has two mana sacrifice caustic caterpillar, and it's just a straight up disenchant, so it can get creatures. But that card really. I want to double check whether or not it's seen play in Vintage lately. I don't think it has, but let me find out. So in the year 2022, there's been no main deck Caustic Caterpillars. Let's look at the sideboard. And see. No, no sideboard ones either. Okay, I didn't think so. So Steve, this is about the most efficient you can make a creature <laughs> that disenchants it. stuff. This has got to be um, one of my favorite cards in this set. This is just such a, everything I love about <laughs> it. It's It's quirky title. It's quirky theme. Yeah. The fact that it's an artifact with a green activation. It's it's a dis yeah, this yep. is it's, it's an, an insect. insect. This is really cool. It plays well with grist. If you mill this with grist, you get a, an extra trigger. Uh so my my reason for bringing this into the set review is is because of its dramatic efficiency, right? Aside from zero mana activation like uh I don't know, a heap doll or something, you know. Heap doll. You, you can't get much better than this. <laughs> I forgot about yeah. that card, yeah. Right. Um, there's a lot of juicy targets for this in Vintage. Citadel's a good example. Breach is obviously a good example. Various lock pieces. Uh, Oath of Druids, if it's a thing. I mean, that's a good example. The fact that this is a saga-able effect is, I think, worth considering, though it's not unique in that re regard. There are other ways to get disenchant-like effects with saga, and the most common one these days is simply needle, right? Which means... Saga inherently has that going on, which is why Needle's so common. But the fact that this is also a minor beatdown creature, plays well with Sagas, both coming and going, can be moderately disruptive. I'm trying to think what kind of deck has green in it and would really want this, and the only answer I can come up with is various Deathrite Shaman decks. Those decks tend to not have trouble removing stacks-like components like this, because they've got access to Abrupt Decay and Assassin's Trophy, in addition to Force of Vigor, of course. So it's not like this is filling a, a dramatic gap, but I think it's the sort of card that you need to have in your belt for when your deck construction is pointing you in a direction of this is synergistic. If you're green and Urza Saga and you've got one more point of interaction, perhaps it could be that this that your, your deck construction calls for one of these. I think we're kind of at the heyday of disenchant effects. <laughs> yeah, especially, especially with Bazaju. Yeah. Oh, right, Basaju, thank you for calling that out. Yes, there is no lack for that effect. Absolutely. And there, we've also gone through a kind of a an era of playing creatures that disenchant, right? Extending back to Vintage Champs all the way in the the Bob Marr, Owen Turtenwald era with the, the Bob Trigon decks in the mirror match in the finals, right? Extending back to those days. The modern, we, we, you know, we went through a little bit of, what was the big three mana one? Thrashing Brontodon? but that wasn't very popular. Then we got into the modern equivalent, which is the Outland Liberator. I think that's the name of that one. The Werewolf one, which is a very strong card. And so you're right. Green is not lacking for disenchant effects and not even in the creature realm, which this one adds to the pile. 
I think Outland Liberator is a good comparison because that card is really, really strong. It's strong in that it has this similar sacrifice effect, but if you get that day-night flip, then you get a, a really aggressive, large, and triggering on attack instead of damage version of Trigon and how, how, how much does that see play? Not much, but m- more than zero. Let me, let me try and get a measurement of that here for you. So main deck occurrences of Outland Liberator this year, it looks like in the Magic Goldfish archive for this year, it looks like a half a dozen appearances. Three challenges, a couple of paper events, and some leagues. So not a lot, but two challenge, three challenge top eights this year, and two of them in July. It was a part of those Bant Archon decks, I think. Oh wait, I'm sorry, this is a Bant deck, but it's not an Archon deck. It's just a Bant Lavinia deck. That's a bad example. Hold on a sec. Oh, I just noticed. Oh, I, I gotta go back. I was I was searching in the sideboard. Sorry, hold on. I gotta I gotta restate what I just said. So going back to the beginning of the year, there have been many appearances of the Outland Liberator. In terms of challenge decks, even in recent history, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, jeez, eight, nine, ten, eleven going back just to into October, the beginning of October. Wow. That's Those are challenge decks. Yeah. So the the card is doing well. And it's appearing in a in a multitude of archetypes too. So yeah, hold on just a second. Let me find a good representative example. Green white. Oh, that's that's not a good example. That's a 30th place list. My search wasn't wasn't looking for top eights. Apologies, hold on. Yep, so there's less than that. That was all that was all challenge appearances, I apologize, not just top eights. But it is coming through in Bant decks, in humans decks. There's some white green hate bears style decks, which it's common in multiple different iterations. So bug. Anyway, the Outland Liberator, I think, in the vintage context, is holding its own in terms of popularity right now. I think it's kind of at the zenith of the of this archetype of creature, where if you don't have a disenchant target, it's still a reasonable beatdown creature. In the lens of that, I think this Haywire might probably doesn't have a home right now. It's cool, it's efficient, but Outland Liberator is nice and efficient also. And the decks, as you observed, have just a plethora of options for disenchant. It's so the most I'm we've go ever zero. seen, so in a long time. I love this card. Yeah. I I think it is hampered by the fact that two mana for disenchant effect is too much these days, frankly. Unless you're basically doing an uncounterable. Like Bazeju is not uncounterable. You can counter channel, right? <laughs> uh, you can with a stifle, but not with a yeah. regular counter spell. Yeah, I think t- t- the premium for two mana disenchants is essentially uncounterability. And so one mana is the default. This is too much for that effect. And it's also just too too strange and odd. I mean, why would you play this over <laughs> Fragmentize or a Nature's Claim, right? That's the thing. So I agree with you in that you would have to have some other incentive to do so. This plays with a thing like Luris. This plays with a thing like Saga. Doesn't play with Green Sun Zenith. But you'd have to have some other incentive, you're right, for, for playing this particular colorless artifact creature. All right, let's move on to another one mana artifact, and that is Mishra's Research <laughs> Desk. For one mana, I know, right? For one mana, it's an artifact. You pay one and sacrifice it. Exile the top two cards of your library, choose one of them, and until the end of your next turn, you can play that card. It also has Unearth for one and red, one R. So once again, one mana to cast, one mana to activate. You look at the top two and pick one, until the end of your next turn, not this turn, but next turn, you can play that card. 
I suppose that's the upside of making this an artifact rather than a cantrip. It can have that delayed trigger. Um, that's right. So yeah, it, it's kind of like a two mana preordain, but it's an impulsive preordain, and you get to buy it back for three mana in a future turn. Basically, it, it's a note that you are exiling both of the cards you look at. So there's going to be awkward situations where you exile your your citadel, <laughs> right, and some other thing which is one of the reasons why impulsive draw has always been hard to maximize in vintage. It's got kind of the Ragavan effect of your own deck, right? You get a random assortment of what you need to look at, and sometimes you're forced to take something you don't want to. Nicely, though, that this plays so well with Moxen, right? You can invest in this on turn one and then crack it for just a single off-color Mox mana on a subsequent turn. It's really efficient that way. And of note, it plays with Saga, so I I really can't imagine doing that, but if you just need to dig with a Saga and no tutor target no silver bullet does the job you could bring out one of these and just dig i don't think this card's very amazing it's not it's not like it's doing a thing that we've always always wanted right it compares kind of unfavorably to sensei's divining top <laughs> in practice and that's a big thing because sensei's divining top is omnipresent when would you want this more than sensei's divining top if you if you're drawing it off the top in an empty hand this shows you one fewer card than top but it clears two cards from your deck. So it, it digs deeper yeah. in the long run, but top sees one more card. It sets oh, up a future turn differently. Okay, so... If you had a ton of mana, this is a better card. Yeah. Because for one, you can just clear one, 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 one. For five mana, you can clear the top four and draw two cards. So if you've got a bunch of mana, this card's Okay, superior. so you top and you see Demonic Tutor, Mox, Force of Will. Yeah. <laughs> It's yeah. what you take there is just so situational, right? It's like depend on what you want. Like if you want a D- yeah. if you need a mox, you can just set it up so you draw that and then have the force on top put into your hand. Yeah. Or maybe you want the force now so you can play DT next turn or vice versa. I mean it's just yeah. ah, it's so hard to say. I mean Yeah. I think a lot of lessons from playing with Sensei's Divining Top apply to this card. Yeah. And so that that's good because players have some muscle memory built in for how they would evaluate this. But the fetch land is so, interaction with top is just so predominant. Yeah. This produces more raw card advantage, though, in a way that top never really can. Uh, Voltaic key notwithstanding. When push comes to shove, two turns later, you're going to be up a card with this in a way that you never will be with top. But top is just a much more reliable and better card in, in totality. Yeah, I don't know about this card. I mean, this is just another one of, we keep saying this over and over again. This card, I would argue, is playable. Is it great? No. Could you make a top eight with this card in your deck? Yeah, probably. Where is this maximally good? I mean, what would what, what would have to happen for this to be just the thing? God, that's hard to say. If you if you duplicated this somehow or copied the ability, because the thing with top is you get into an you, in, it's, it's, it's engine card as we know. There's lots of combos throughout history, like Helm of Awakening and stuff. So the fact that it's putting itself back on top is meaningful for top. It's part of its big picture function it's place this card's not like that this is just sack to draw right. a card right costs costs not when standing this is just sack for plus one card so when would you really want that you'd want that if you were well this plays with um underworld breach good point because if you're not if you're not using the unearth of this card which inherently exiles it once you're done you, this is repeated use if you had a breach engine that produced three mana per cycle, or a, a two mana per cycle, I mean. You could just cast and reactivate this, churning through your deck and replacing itself every time. So if you've got a breach line that's producing mana, this can go on indefinitely. Not infinitely, but 
for a while. And it plays well with Breach in that it's a sacrifice. So when you're done using it, you can feed the next spell. So that's an upside that this has over top. Top doesn't inherently play well with Breach in that sense. And this plays well with Breach in the sense that you can get some effort, you can get some um, extra card advantage going by just milling this. You know how many Breach decks sometimes just do the mid-game brain freeze for value? It's not a common play, but it's it's something that's available to you and sometimes you have to do it. This plays well with that plan. You can just freeze yourself and this has Unearth inherently. In that sense, it also plays well with Dragon's Rage Channeler because you can just mill this. It contributes to types, which gets the the what's the keyword ability on dragon's range channeler um that makes it big <laughs> i just blanked on it but it, it 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 has the increased likelihood of making dragon's rage channeler large and also letting you recoup card advantage have from having milled delirium delirium is the ability okay. i was thinking so the more i think about it this is accumulating some some valuable upside and use cases with respect to breach i think plays well with luris in here yeah yeah, I mean, obviously, the fact that you can recur this, it, I, I, look, it is dissynergistic with Unearth in the sense that it does draw from your graveyard. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean to say it's dissynergistic? In what sense? Well, breach like Yogmas will. You want to maximize the number of cards you can play from your graveyard. Oh, I see what you mean. Yes, in that sense, if you unearth it once, you're giving up on any future breach exactly. applications. So from that standpoint, you might want to play a few of these in a breach deck. Maybe it's a two of or a three of or something. I don't know. But uh, to your point, yeah, the fir- the first use from Unearth, you would have to do- be judicious about that in terms of whether or not you needed it for the long-term plan. My instincts are that no breach deck really needs this as a long-term plan. It's just kind of like a, a space filler, extra inherent value. But it doesn't take much in a breach deck, right? When you're When you're fighting one of those... Um, Jeskai or Grixis matchups and it's all kind of nip and tuck and you're jockeying for position with your counter spells and your flusters and your pyros like all it takes is to get a random plus one card here or there to really get over the threshold in matchups like that when you're peppering in one mana counter spells and you're jockeying for position and you're just trying to get that opening to resolve say uh, your hull breacher or your some other key spell to disrupt them I this kind of thing plays inherently well in those kind of games when you've got little openings. And if you play a turn one Dragon's Rage Channeler and you flip this over with your, with one of your early loots, that's really setting you up for a nice little value gain in the mid-game from off-color Moxon. I don't know. It's 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 destined to be a small incremental thing, right? There's this 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 card's not like top. You can't engines notwithstanding, you can't top's not this card's not gonna own a game the way top can, right? How many games have we seen and throughout history that have just been really dominated by the presence of a top th- throughout the course of three, four, five turns and its manipulation, as you said, and, and it, the fetch land interaction? So this card's never going to do that. That said, I don't think it's out of the realm of, of possibility. I, I don't know. This is one of those cards uh, where I'm not going to be surprised if somebody makes a top eight with one in a deck that has these components I'm talking about, Breach, Channeler, Saga, it plays nicely a little bit with all those things. I don't think it's a long-term staple of anything necessarily. I can't, I mean, I can't imagine a future where a common vintage play is like Landmark's research desk <laughs> go. No, I agree. You know what though? I'm sorry. You know what's interesting about that play is that the activation is instant speed. So think about that. You're playing, you're playing like Grixis Tinker that has this card in their deck and you're playing against Doomsday and you go, 
Scalding Tarn, Mox Jet, Player Research Desk go. And your opponent goes like, Dark Ritual Doomsday. The fact that you can activate this in response to that and search two cards deep for a Force of Will, there's something to that. Yeah, but what if you don't hit? Well, I don't care. Like, you, if you don't hit, then you set aside some other card you're going to spend on your next turn if, if the game goes that long. <laughs> right? But the point is, it's like um, it's like you know, an instant speed I, preordain I think the f- of a sort. It's like a it's like a preordained mana yeah. battery. <laughs> I I'm curious about the relationship between the difference between exile and putting into hand. I wonder how significant that is. Well, it's impulsive draw, so it's inherently limited in its use cases. But vintage decks these days, a lot of them are tend toward big turns, Two. right? Your, your your citadel breach decks are the are the the commonplace for your combo control. And so the exile part is, it inherently plays well with those kind of decks and their strategies. It, and that's why I was interested in that kind of doomsday example right there, because it's like either you get the interactive card that you needed right then and there, the force of will, or you set yourself up for the following turn. Like if, you're, if, if your opponent is doomsdaying on one and you just don't have the interaction, you can't stop it. But the two cards you look at include, I don't know, some some real hit like your Black Lotus or your Demonic Tutor or your Underworld Breach or your Time Walk, right? Like you're going you're gonna to scroll that card away in exile. And then if your opponent builds a past the turn pile in Doomsday, the, the fact that you couldn't interact is, is replaced with the fact that you just got two cards deeper into your deck and, and picked a quality card. So that's still contributing pretty strongly to your, your win conditions. But that's the thing. That's the thing that I'm setting up about this card is that there's some flexibility in the timing. I might go go without saying, but we just reviewed a a stone brain that could only act to be activated as a sorcery. Right. right? This card doesn't have that limitation, and so you can just hang it out there and do what you need to do with it. Right. Cards like this inherently play well with wheels, for example. Right. You hang this out there, and then and then jockey for position on a hull breacher wheel interaction. And well, let's not. Let's not go so far as to say you, you land both Hull Breacher and Wheel, but like you're, you're, you know, there's lots of decks in the format right now that are trying to do exactly that. So you, you lay this out there, and then you fight over a wheel, and maybe you'll get it to resolve, and now this is the eighth card in your new hand already. Also, this is not drawing, so it sidesteps Narset. Yes, that I think that's what I was trying to shielded. get at, is the fact that it doesn't go into hand suggests there are certain advantages over it that, that are really... Yeah, we don't have a Thoughtseize yes. format really I mean, right you, now, if you but put a, it helps with I that. I think you keep talking about Force of Will, but what really matters is like mm-hmm. Flusterstorm, honestly. Well, I mean, I was setting up the scenario where you only have one mana open, so you're tapping exactly. out to activate this. But yeah, in a subsequent turn, that's a great play. You're right. You can just float a, a Flusterstorm into your hand. Absolutely. It plays well with all that cheap interaction, of course. Huh. I don't know. This is this card is never... It's just not destined to be earth-shattering. It's not like we're going to see a four of research deck desk deck anytime soon, I don't think. It's not quite good enough for that. Well, I mean, but Sensei's Divining Top doesn't see play as a four of, so... Um, no, you're right. That's true. That's totally apt. The thing about a top, though, is it has that effect where once you find your top, it's kind of active for the whole rest of that game. True. Which not many cards have that kind of that effect on a game. Even in its heyday, there were not really four top decks, Yeah. right? Everybody recognized that once you got your first one, you didn't really need to find another one. But that's kind of beside the point. This card doesn't suffer from that. My point is that this card's so incremental that it's also competing for space with your your ponder preordain kind of cards and top itself. And any deck that really wants this effect is probably not cutting its top for a, a research desk. I'm confident 
in saying that most of the time. Though the way that it plays with Breach, I think it does have an advantage over top in that respect. Um, I'm so close to going non-zero on this, but I'm not quite there. It's it's real I close. Think that, I think it's, it's a really real intriguing card, honestly. Yeah. I don't know. I'm going to stick with zero, but I'm not going to be bummed out or surprised if we see some of these. I'll take zero as well. Okay. All right. In the interest of time, Soul Partition. One dub. Instant. Exile. Target non-land permanent. Drop to a good start. <laughs> <laughs> For as long as that card remains exiled, its owner may play it. A spell cast by an opponent this way costs two more to cast. So let me review. Two mana. Instant. That's all good. Exile target non-lane permanent. Fantastic. As long as that card is exiled, they may play it. But if it's a, it's a spell, it costs two colorless more. Or two generic more. So temporary removal. Not quite blink, because it doesn't come back automatically. They st- still have to replay it. But... In some cases, this is permanent removal on your um, Bolas' Citadel, for example. <laughs> True. <laughs> nobody's nobody's paying uh, 5 BBB to recast their Bolas' Citadel. In most cases, in a vintage context, this is it's kind of a speed bump, but it depends on the turn, right? If you go land Mox Go, and your opponent goes like Mox Ancient Tomb Hull Breacher. Well, they wouldn't do it on main phase. Let's, let's say Alayla, for example. They go like Mox Ancient Tomb Alayla. Or Land Mana Crypt Alayla, right? A three drop on one. And you soul partition that Alayla. That card's probably not getting recast for a while, right? It's not going to come back on the next turn and probably not the turn after that, right? There's a lot of cards in Vintage that if you tack two mana onto their cost, they become nearly unplayable again. Not every card. And this is not effective against, it's not very good against things like Moxon. It's not very good against Ragavan. It's not very good against Deathrite Shaman. But there's a lot of mid-tier cards that see play, mid-range cards that see play in the format that this is a very effective removal spell against. Hullbreacher, Alayla, Shieldred, um, almost anything out of Bazaars, right? If you soul partition a, a Hogak, they're going to have a hard time recasting it. <laughs> True. I mean, so, so the, the, the Hogak decks, te- yes. they can produce mana, so I don't want to say it's a sure thing, but the, the non-Hogak decks, like your Dredge deck... But why you know, would never you ever play this? You I mean, partition. okay, keep going. Well, uh, that's, and I think that's an apt question, right? You'd play this because of its yes. flexibility, because this can function like a Vindicate, an instant speed yeah. exile yeah. Vindicate. And so at that, at that mana cost, there's nothing that's quite like it, nothing quite as good. But it doesn't apply to everything, right? You, you can't hit a land for one. It's no good against a Mox, really. And um, there's a couple of other cheap things like your death rights and your ragavans that it's not very good against. If you're desperate, you can do this to a death right. And yeah, it, it, it's not coming back for a couple of turns. It's not great. But then again, what is when is removing a death Never. right? Great. I mean, it's great. Right? Yeah, I always. Mean, even until, if, until until you can't until it's like an overwhelming use of resources against it. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. But the 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 unique flexibility to cost ratio of this card, I think, is where it's at. I think it fits okay in a a spectrum of decks that need answers, right? Like you and I have seen throughout history, and this is rare, but we've seen like your Jeskai decks that have an echoing truth in them, or maybe Chain of Vapor never really made its way into Jeskai. But that echoing truth slot, anytime you play echoing truth in Vintage, you're giving up something, right? <laughs> you're making a sacrifice. And this card is going to be better than echoing truth in a lot of cases. I haven't heard that anyone mention Echoing Truth in at least the better part of a decade. <laughs> well, you're not wrong about that, and that's why I'm not over the moon about this card, but that is God. that is the kind of use case. That's the kind of slot 
Well, when you, uh, Jeskai, for example, has very flexible removal for any one card type. Lightning Bolt, Fragmentize, Wear Tear, uh, Swords to Plushers, right? Jeskai is really good at removing any one thing, but every one of those cards has a gap, right? You open up Lightning Bolt against um, Citad uh, Bolas' Citadel or Underworld Breach, and you're going to be super unhappy. Likewise, you fan open a Fragmentize and they go, they go Dak Faden, you're bummed out. Or Renin Six, right? You fan open a Fragmentize and they go Shieldred, like, bummer. So that's the use case for this card. You fan open this in your opening hand out of Jeskai and you're like, all right, I'm not losing to some, some low impact or some mid-range permanent anytime soon <laughs> when I'm holding this card. It's good against Planeswalkers too, especially the ones that are trying to go up. Because like it or not, a Renin 6 for four mana is not I, a good deal. I confess I have a very weak feel for how these white mana removal spells actually function, aside from the ancient ones. I mean, there's just so many of these that see play in contemporary vintage. I can't even remember the names of all of them. Prismatic, this and that. You know, it's just like... Yeah, and uh, Otherworld yeah, Journey. I just don't know yeah. what they feel like, where, where their optimal use is. Is it in a tempo situation? Is it sort of like when you've got an array of creatures threatening victory? Is it in a control situation? Is it sort of like... A, is it not situational, but is it sort of more strategic? Is it sort of like... You're holding this for this particular threat, you know, like Tariff, which is something I have played a lot with. You know, I just don't know <laughs> yeah, good example. situationally where these cards fit in. They're just so strange to me that people play these things. So I, it's very difficult for me to evaluate having not actually wielded one of these card, cards in recent, you know, like, I mean, I played a lot of white and the last time I played white was Mentor. <laughs> so, you know, seriously and in, in, in vintage. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just hard, to, hard to evaluate. For me, on my end, I'm leaning heavily on you. I mean, I just I, my <laughs> instinct is that you know you go with the card you want. If you're trying to hit enchantments and artifacts, you're going to play fragmentize. If you're trying to hit creatures, you're going to play plow. You know where you're going to ramp up the mana for flexibility is obviously important, but not in a. I mean, in a main deck, or isn't that something? I don't know. Maybe I don't know. I just I don't see this you being well, very the Hogak deck. I mean, like the Hogak the Hogak deck is just so overwhelmingly powerful and resilient. It's it can attack you from so many different angles. It can get you with Hollow One, it can get you with Deathrite Shamans, it can get you from Venge Vines, and it can get you from Hogak. I just don't see this being very useful against that, frankly. I mean, it could open up with double Hollow One, and you play this on turn two against one Hollow One. Who cares? You know. <laughs> well, the, I see your point, and I I do think you're being a little bit extreme in your stance there. The uh, yes, the deck I have that been, by won the, way. That was the challenge. <laughs> <laughs> I know the deck that won the challenge on. 1120 was a four color basically a, a Jeskai a Jeskai deck that what was the fourth color oh I had Demonic Tutor in it yeah so four color Jeskai with Demonic Tutor that deck had two main deck March of Otherworldly Light which is the card I was trying to refer to a second ago that card is exile target artifact creature or enchantment with mana value X and so it's an X spell at an instant and then you could pitch if you remember you can pitch part of that cycle from Neon Dynasty where you can pitch cards that match that color to reduce its cost by two which is kind of a garbage mechanic, but I'm sure it comes up every once in a while. So that card is a really apt, I think, comparison for this. March of Otherworldly Light is flexible. It's a straight-up exile, artifact, creature, or enchantment, so it can't hit Planeswalkers. But it scales terribly, right? It's an X spell. So you gotta pay two to get rid of Ragavan. You gotta pay three to get rid of Dreadhorde Arcanist or Time Vault. You gotta pay five to get rid of Shieldred or, or whatever you're trying to do. Three mana to get rid of... Oh, you can't hit a Planeswalker. So think about... 
where that kind of card fits in a deck that's trying to that's trying to just tempo someone out. This keep in mind, this is a four color tempo deck that won the challenge, and all it's got is Ragavan, Arcanist, and a Mentor, and it's playing two copies of this exile based Vindicate X spell. If that deck can be that successful with a spell like that, that is doesn't scale well cost wise, and this one is always fixed at two. There's got to be something to it, I think. Uh, you I, I very just, well could be right. I just this, I'm, this what I'm saying is playable. I'm disqualifying myself for being an, an evaluator of this card. <laughs> I mean, I can okay, look at enough. the objective cards that see play. I can see its tactical applications. I just can't envision yeah. a tar for, without having been a wielder of the deck in which this thing sees play. I can't see a high value use case. So, well. Let, let's yeah, and let's do one of our. You're not going to be able to tests. persuade let's, me of it because it, I just don't. It's it's it's. Go ahead. Well, let's do one of our tests in, in extreme to test your your issue here. What if this card didn't have the clause that they could get it back ever? What if this was just two mana straight up? Exile I think that it would be much stronger, but the problems mm-hmm. would, would would still remain. That's interesting to me. Okay, I was thinking that your object, objection was really with the no. kind of tempo-y... No, um, I think I think that I mean yes that you you really think a two mana vindicate exile at well, instant speed is, well, look, is kind of well, look, barely there. It's no, I, it's a combination of several things. <laughs> Number one, it's the color it's in. So you know okay. what are the decks that are like when I look at the landscape of vintage right now? Yes, there are decks that play white, but there's sort of the Grixis control deck. There's the Hogak deck. There's the Dredge deck. There's the Doomsday deck. You know, there's there's hap. Half of the top eight in the last challenge were I white believe you. Decks. What I'm saying is that, let me just okay. be clear. Okay. The white decks that exist take different a couple of different forms from what I've seen. So the, the problem with, if you remove the second, cl- the second sentence, this becomes both a control card and a tempo card, right? As it's written, it's primarily a tempo card. The control card requires <laughs> permanency. We can both agree on that, right? I would yes. say so, but that's... There's a, there's a little bit of an asterisk there in that there's barely a pure control. That's my deck point. In <laughs> that's right? my point. Okay. I mean, so everything is a, either I, well, a tempo or a That's combo what I'm driving control. at. That's why I don't think that the second clause is actually that important because there's of the absence of the control okay. <laughs> of a pure sort of like grindy yeah. white blue control there's deck. No exactly. still right now. Therefore, yeah. I don't think the second part is dispositive. What I'm saying okay. Interesting. is that the additional ma- for a tempo card. There's a premium on efficiency, and a, a mm-hmm. vindicate. It's like, it's it's like asking how much better is a vindicate than a swords to plowshares. It's a it's a it's a troubling question because it requires a holistic answer for situational circumstances, right? It's like, it's like in in football, yeah. you know, it's like it's like <laughs> situational gameplay is like okay, you got two minutes left, or it's like third or fourth down. That's not every an every down situation. Do you see? Do you see my point? Is that yeah? So oh, absolutely. <laughs> that's what yeah. I'm getting at. Go well, ahead. and I, I get that you were saying that you were kind of recusing yourself because the use case for this is is hard for you to to come yes. to grips with. Well, I, that's why I cited that challenge winning yeah. deck though, because I feel yeah. like the things you are you're resistant to are demonstrated by a card that's already being played in a successful yes, deck. Yes, I agree. And I'm and the, what the March I'm saying of is I'm still Light baffled. Is an example card, of a card that I'm baffled by the presence of that card. <laughs> I'm just yeah. Okay, yeah. well, and that's fair enough as as a as a blanket statement. I get it. Um, I, I mean, so perhaps you and I just w- won't ever really reach. We a don't consensus need to. This is this what card, we're the, 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 the diversity time. of opinion is actually yeah. a strength of the show because 
No. Okay. I so totally agree. I'm going to go yeah. low. I'm not going to go. I'm going to go low. Whatever you take, I'm going to probably take the under. So. <laughs> well, okay. It's, um, my question to you really is, are, are you interested in going zero I, though? I think that the fact that there card. is this contingent of players who like to play these cards gives me, gives me real pause. Mm-hmm. I, I need to, the, the closest analogs of these, they cost two and three, right? So. Uh, Boy, that's uh, the short answer is yes, but I'm trying to think of what close analogs to this are. The March of, March of Otherworldly Light is what's the prismatic one cost? Is that three? Uh, prismatic ending is also X, an X spell, but, but on it, average, yeah, it destroys a permanent. Uh, well, I mean, it's it's about how big is the average vintage permanent, <laughs> right? So it's going to be in the in the we'll say in the, the one yeah, to three see. range, yeah. And it's a sorcery, and it requires multiple yeah. colors. That to me yeah. is the closest. So there's that lots of other limiting factors there. Um, that's a decent comparison. Don't get me wrong, but this has a lot of upside. I got you. Card. It's instant. Mox, it's blah blah blah. I mean, yeah, I got. Yeah. I got it. Exile. Yeah. Um. Oh, it's also worth noting how. And I know you're not laboring under the assumption that the the rider on this card is the limiting factor, but there's other ways to make the rider less impactful, and that's with stacks huh. pieces, right? <laughs> your oh, your thorn of amethyst, um, collector oof, Lavinia. Look at Lavinia, um, Archon of Ameria. Like, there's lots of cards that make the recast even harder, and therefore make the the upside, the front side even more effective. Well, at any rate, I take your meaning though. Like, we don't. This show we've been so close in our predictions. It's kind of fun to have one where we're not so close. I genuinely believe that this is a non-zero, and I genuinely believe that this is greater than one. I've done a little bit of a search, and this year the March of Other Otherworldly Light has not been a very common player. It's uh, challenge winning performance this month is really an outlier. It has seen play in other league and challenge decks, but it's been all the way back to the early part of the year, like April, when it was seeing a little more results. But it hasn't had a top eight. I'm, I'm doing some quick math here. I don't think it's had a top eight as good as this challenge win this year. I could be missing one or two. Um, so it's not like it's a staple or anything. I do think, however, that that the flexibility of this soul partition combined with the fact that there are enough decks that are trying to have big turns, like um, like an Esper Saga or an Esper PO deck. Those kind of decks, I think, could make good use of this. This is a really good way to fight a Collector Oof and, and out of a PO deck, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so I, I'm not going to go real high on this, but I consider this to be in the in the two to five range. I would argue. So I'm going to go. I'm going to put my money where my mouth right, is. I'll and take go the three. Two. That that's a real easy okay. solution. <laughs> yeah i gave you a decent out there if you wanted Thank to you. take the under quite generous <laughs> all right <laughs> all right one last card for our review here and this one's going to strike some chords with us from a historical standpoint we're talking about arcane proxy this is the prototype card that i said we were going to review normally this thing costs seven colorless or seven generic i should say so that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> it's the seven mana cost. But to read you the details, it is an artifact creature wizard. And the normal size for seven mana is a four three. When arcane proxy enters the battlefield, if you cast it, that's important. So you can't weld it in for this or tinker it in for this. If you cast it, exile target instant or sorcery card with mana value less than or equal to arcane proxy's power from your graveyard. Copy that card. You may cast a copy without paying its mana cost. So it does make the card free. And it does exile it. The prototype cost is 1 UU, and the creature is sized as a 2-1. So, ignore the 7 mana cost for a minute. 
you play this as a 2-1 for 3, and you get to cast a 0-1 or 2 mana instant or sorcery card out of your graveyard for free. <laughs> so it's got a little bit of yes. Snapcaster in it, but it doesn't have flash. It is an artifact creature, so there's some, some inherent synergies there vis-a-vis -vis, you know, 8-cast and other things like that. You can't cheat this into play and get this effect, right. unfortunately, which would have been really cool as a tinker target, for example. But it does make the card you cast free, sidestepping all mana costs and restrictions. So this, you know, is another one that you can throw on the Snapcaster pile, right? It's not repeatable unless you return it to your hand. So it's not like a Dreadhorde Arcanist, and, um, but it does play the card for free, unlike your Snapcaster mages. But it's not instant speed, so it doesn't do the interaction bit nearly so well like Snapcaster does. Uh, and it's worth noting that Snapcaster is far from a vintage staple anymore. It is down to niche card vintage. <clears throat> so where does that leave you, Steve? I love the name of this card, by the way. Arcane Proxy is a sweet title. Um, <laughs> it, it's sweet, and I think it's a little definitely. cheeky, too. Um, I think we have hit... It's sort of like with the growing creatures. We've hit this kind of... We're, we're beyond the critical mass of creatures that, you know... Oh, yeah. And I think this just enters a a crowded a crowded field, right? It's like there's just too many of these now. So, I mean, there's a lot to say about if you want me to technically analyze this card, I would say, okay, you have the value of the card is equal to the sum of its possible use cases, right? So if you have a, just an abundance amount of mana, you're going to play it for the seven and get the full value. And like, you know, like I've got a million mana, I'm going to flashback this, I don't know, whatever, swords or um, ancestral recall or time walk be quite good. Most cases, though, um, you're going to uh, you're going to just play it for three, right? And you're going to get whatever the thing is you have in your graveyard. So it's probably like a preordain, <laughs> right? Right? Because <laughs> because it's not less, like yeah. you can use this. It's not like you can use this like you can with Snapcaster Mage. I mean, it's hard now to remember. I don't think contemporary vintage players will appreciate this, but like one of the most common uses with Snapcaster Mage was mental misstep. <laughs> Oh god, those were ugly days. <laughs> those yes. were fun days. Um but mental <laughs> misstep being unrestricted and in, in Snapcaster you just, you know, frequently do that, right? It'd be like, okay, I'm playing my my preordain or your ponder or brainstorm, I'm going to Snapcaster misstep it is like a kind of just a tempo an obnoxious tempo play. I guess that's why you you didn't like it. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was an obnoxious tempo play. I mean, I did yes. it a lot, but I didn't like it. And then, like then doing for, it. if you wanted to counterspell something, the most common thing to do would be to snapcaster a pyroblast right not something you can mm -hmm. do here you have to hit something on board um so this is yep. not even close to as powerful as snapcaster it's just not even when you aggregate the potential use cases right because like the that the, the, i don't know the, what's the ratio of times you're going to play this for for seven versus three maybe well let me invert that what's the ratio of times mm -hmm. you're going to play it to for three mana versus seven probably Less than one. I was gonna say eleven to one. <laughs> so I was gonna say like, was that seven percent? You said one percent. So yeah. you're probably right. So that makes it. I mean, one percent would be technically a hundred to one. But but yeah. I don't think it's quite yeah. that extreme. It's probably more in the range of like twenty-five to one. Well, and and I might be a little bit off about that because depending on deck construction, there could this could be like the sort of late exactly. game card where. You're just like, I might as well yeah, play it Yeah, and it puts you a little bit over the top. <laughs> okay, I don't need to. wow, I just, like, yeah. I'm preordaining. Now I've got another force, whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's it's also interesting 
that it's it's an artifact creature, so you could theoretically play this off of workshops um, at the top end. Um, granted, granted. But again, there are these weird blue workshop decks that I've seen in the last year and a half where people like chain, they kind of daisy chain those artifact blue creatures that draw cards and one after another. I don't know how those things work on the back end, mm-hmm. so it's hard to know. But I think this this is just a really interesting card that is just woefully underpowered relative to Snapcaster Mage, which itself has dramatically fallen off the map. That's my conclusory yeah. summation. Yeah. <laughs> I, t- I totally agree with you. Snapcaster is barely good enough for Vintage right now. It's still played. It's not, not, a, it's not off the radar. It's still applicable in Paradoxical Outcome. Which is not a dominant deck by any stretch right now, but um, but Justin Gennari, you know, keeps sure the touch alive. And Snapcaster is still good in that deck. It's still a solid role player. But the days of the like three Snapcaster control decks, which I used to love shortly after Snapcaster came out, I mean, those days are over. And so Snapcaster is best, definitely relegated to role player in that sense. And I completely agree with you that this card, you know, I know what's that? What's the famous phrase? I know. John Kennedy. Oh, you know John uh, yeah, Kennedy? yeah. It was, was it? Uh, was a Lloyd. It was Dan Quayle and Lloyd Benson or something debate. Yeah, I knew John Kennedy. You, sir, <laughs> are no John Kennedy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, yes. So from that sense, the only thing I'd like to tease knew, out is we knew Snapcaster is there, Mage. Believe me, <laughs> <laughs> we knew Snapcaster Mage. The only way this card is going to outperform Snapcaster Mage, there's two use cases. One of them is highly unlikely, which is if you're reliably playing it for seven. And you get some four mana spell back for free. That's not going to happen. If you can reliably cheat the mana cost on something that's otherwise unreasonable or or unreliable with Snapcaster or Dreadhorde Arcanist, that's the only way this would see play over the two of them, I think. And that would require doing something cheeky like flashing back something without a mana cost, aka your um, your Ancestral Vision living ends of the world. And that strategy has just never panned out in Vintage. Even with four Ancestral Visions in your deck, it's too unreliable to get access to one. And it's not worth putting a whole bunch of energy. You know, you sink three cards into getting an Ancestral Vision into your graveyard just to pay this 2-1 just to draw three cards. Well, you haven't really profited. The other way is if you had some ridiculous mana requirement or mana spread in your deck and getting to cheat those costs was valuable to you. I mean, imagine you're some kind of five-color deck or you've got these ridiculous things like uh, a whole bunch of commands like witherbloom command and some other playable two color command i can't even think of an example if you had things like that and you really needed to sidestep those costs but because this thing is capped at two power normally you're only ever cheating on one color of mana really so you could cast a witherbloom command with three islands when you had this thing like that's that's not that useful of a use case in an environment built on three color decks and deathrite shaman you're, so those two things I think are both completely unreasonable and, and unreliable and therefore this thing will never supersede <laughs> Snapcaster or yeah, Arcanist. I, I should have been explicit. If you have two Mishra's workshops and I don't know, a wasteland in play, <laughs> you can flash back an you know, a time walk. <laughs> That's right. That's totally or, right. Or 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 and even better, of, what's that card? Um just what is it? Expressive iteration, the red the red blue. Uh is that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. That might be a better example than the stupid Witherbloom command thing I was trying to come up with. That is a, a, an ideal example of a card that stresses your mana base and you can get some advantage by sidestepping its cost, but 
the juice is not worth the <laughs> squeeze in terms of trying to play arcane proxy to accomplish that. Just just play a better mana base and yeah. prepare for it. And people are doing that already. I mean, expressive iteration is not a vintage staple, but it's being played. All right, that brings us to the end of our Brothers War review, and I have to say, it's not looking good for this. No, set. and I have to ask you, what the he- like? How thematically does this tie to the Urza? I mean, we've have, we've seen this does doesn't seem to be sort of like I don't know. Antiquities was this set that was set after the excavation of the Brothers War, right? So this is supposed to be set uh-huh, in the uh-huh. Brothers War. It doesn't feel very much That's like right. Antiquities in that regard. <laughs> no. You're very much, that's a really strong observation. This is current events as opposed to, yes, the excavation. And it as such, it lives up to that. I mean, this set is dripping with flavor when it comes to Urza, Urza and Mishra's lives, their conflict, and their contemporaries. And so only even a quick perusal of the set finds you with multiple critical events in their their interactions. Like the Brotherhood's End is, a, you know, depicting a moment of their conflict. The Mightstone and the Weakstone itself is a representation of what, you know, the catalyst and the MacGuffin of their overall conflict. And there's all manner of of side characters in their their lives that are represented now on cards directly in ways that they were only referenced in the past. Herkel, <laughs> Tokazia, Gix. I mean, there's there's just a litany of names that you and I would recognize that have never existed except in flavor text before or in card titles like Herkel's Recall, you know. So this set, I think, is a fantastic flavor win, especially for those of us who have been around since the beginning and seeing things like Urza's glasses, right? (laughs) And, well, Urza's maybe a bad example because we've had an Urza card already, but and a Mishra card already, but seeing things like Herkel see print after you and I have been casting Herkel's Recall all these years is it's especially satisfying in my opinion. So, Steve, if you haven't done so, I encourage you to at least peruse the spoiler looking for legendary creatures and look at the the people that you will recognize and some perhaps that you won't. They've got Queen Caleb bin Krug, which is Urza's Ersat's wife, which is pretty cool, and a number of other great characters. Um, Overall, this set does not bode well for vintage, though. We predicted play for one, two, three, four, four cards. But between the two of us, at least one of us predicted zero for half <laughs> Sorry. of Sorry. Today I'm the evil pessimist. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> That's right. I'm a little more optimistic than you are, I guess. But and even if Soul Partition lives up to some of my expectations, well, it's still not going to be well, a Well, that's okay. Burner, you know, I mean, if this set player. is just role players and utility spells and they end up seeing a little bit of play, yeah. that's better than nothing. I, we don't. It doesn't have to be so binary. It doesn't have to be so like... You know, a card yeah. that sweeps the format. I, I like sets that kind of give us incremental, you know, utility options. It just because those cards actually tend to increase the quantity of playables in the format to a greater extent. So, well, I, I'm glad you said that because it, it's it's easy to get down on a set and just say, well, this set doesn't really offer much for me. But you said it correctly in that we shouldn't. Uh, it is worse when every set is a Modern Horizons in two. some sense. Yeah. Right? It's it's bad for and it's bad for us in very real ways. And some people really enjoy that. Some people want to have the new shiny thing. But when you look at the current state of vintage and you see the dominance of the Modern Horizons sets in the playables, it it makes me a little sad. I do think I prefer to your point the environment where you can make incremental skillful choices in deck construction and play from new cards that give you incremental and situational advantages. 
that that is something that I prefer. I do like a splashy new combo deck every once in a while, but on average, I would prefer a set to have one really solid playable and a couple of role players like this. So that's so not all go. doom and gloom. Yep. And I enjoyed how many times you and I said in this set, wow, what it would have been like if this had been printed 5, 10, 15 years ago. <laughs> all right. With that, thank you for listening to episode 109 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays for as long as Twitter exists, <laughs> or email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed our show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes so that other magic players can find us. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Ha, 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 ha.